0: K Billy's
1: Supersounds of the 70s continues. You've heard Turn the Beat Around by Vicky Sue Robinson, Heaven on the Seventh Floor, La Freak by Chic, Fly Robin Fly by The Silver Connection, and now number five K B I
2: L L Y.
3: Billy Super Sounds, Episode 1, Reservoir Dogs. I'm Chris Turn and I am joined by my partner, Grand Mr. Brian Salazar. Hello. Hello, sir. Howdy, sir. And this is this is a three-wheeled production. Mr. Will Pyfer. How you doing? Hello, man? guys. You guys actually have credentials. Well, actually, Will is the most (laughs) credentialed person here. He's actually a media critic, uh, former uh, film critic for the Rockford Register Star. That's right. We've been uh, uh, all over the internet's X-ray specs and co-host of Out in Theaters, uh, Out of Theaters, (laughs) and then and then Sal, if you know us from Around Comics, is just the obsessive compulsive researcher and uh, and the guy that will chew all the meat off the bone. He's Excellent. Wedding. That's what we <laughs> want. know, get ready for many facts about Quentin Tarantino. I would say universally, of the three of us, our favorite director. Yes. yes. Yeah, he's, he's he's. I vary, but uh, yeah, he's right what up there. Favorite modern director. I
1: would yeah, say. I would think so. I think yes.
4: hmm? definitely up there.
1: Yeah, so I think what. I was thinking about Quentin um actually when I saw him, it came from, or it came from Hollywood once upon a time in Hollywood and I was thinking you know I've been watching his movies since he was making them and it's not like just it's been I feel lucky to have watched one of the great directors sort of throughout thank his whole career
4: thank you for saying that because I feel the same thing is there mm-hmm. other yeah. directors that have of course I appreciate and I love their films but he is he is my you know john ford he is my you know whatever uh stanley kubrick or, or mm-hmm. scorsese even though i was around for scorsese i've seen the beginning and everything that he's done since you know since mm-hmm. the, the start i was there from the beginning the first film he ever did and it blew he was one of the first directors that i even knew you know who, yeah. who he was
3: exactly yeah for, for, me, for me growing up uh if you said name a director it would be Steven Spielberg, right? You know, I'm about, you know, in my late forties, Steven Spielberg was Mr. Hollywood, you know, star director Tarantino was the first director that I felt was like my generations director. You know, it's, agree. it's Reservoir Dogs comes out 1992. I'm, I'm 18, 19 years old. I just graduated high school and, this was this was a movie that I felt was the first for me anyway, was one of the first movies that represented what I thought my generation was trying to to, to be to represent in creatively. So yeah, he's I totally agree with you guys. He was kind of like our first director.
1: Yeah, and it's like I didn't, you know, like Scorsese, Spielberg, those guys, I didn't you know, I didn't hear about how great their movies were from older people or read about them in books. Like I was, I saw Reservoir Dogs when I was in the theater, when it was fairly low, you know, not a lot of people were talking on it back then. So I feel like I hopped on at the beginning and it was, it's been really exciting and you've seen real growth and changes over his career, I think. But, uh, yeah, he's one of the, one of the greats, I think.
4: Yeah. yeah I, it was the same thing. He was, uh, you know, we, I just was talking to my wife about that, uh, asking her if she remembered, because I couldn't remember, did we see Reservoir Dogs in the theaters or not? I knew that we had seen Pulp Fiction because I knew we had seen Reservoir Dogs and I I knew we both needed to see his next movie. <laughs> but I couldn't remember if we had seen Reservoir Dogs in theaters or not. And she said that we did, that we actually had just by happenstance or some something we had gone and seen in the theater and we were both blown away by it and it's still... Still one of my wife's favorite movies I think ever is Reservoir Dogs. Hey, your names.
2: Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to
0: work.
2: What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one.
0: <laughs> I'm so scared, and he gets out <laughs> of the And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs.
2: If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. <laughs> You're acting like a first year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. And He can have some stupid motherfuckers. He no
0: choice at all. Bam! Bam! Bam, 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 bam. You're
2: under arrest, sugar. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Tim Roth. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, I'm gonna shoot this guy.
3: Interesting. I I think I saw it for the first time on VHS. I'm going to admit to that. But
1: I think a lot of people saw it for the first time on VHS. It was not, I mean, it was very influential, but it wasn't a huge theatrical hit here, but it was a huge VHS
3: hit here. Mm -hmm. You know,
1: I think that's where the cult really,
3: really grew. And, you know, I try and remember back, and things do get a little fuzzy, but there was buzz about, Pulp Fiction coming out. I don't know if there was buzz about Pulp Fiction coming out because it was a Quentin Tarantino movie. Maybe a oh,
0: little bit. There was, because
1: I, th- I think at that point, it, like the like you said, every, you know, people had seen yeah. it on the VHS, and I think that people had seen it repeatedly, and so that buzz was really building. And yeah, I think so. I think people. Okay.
4: Well, he had also, I think, um, Reservoir Dogs made a huge impression at, at con, I think that year.
1: And it was very big in England, which is yeah. weird, bigger than it was in America, actually. So,
4: and, um, he was certainly, there was definitely a buzz about him. I mean, he had, he had sold uh, true romance, the script for that. He had sold right. natural born killers, the script
3: for that. And then he had made reservoir dogs. And so, um, <laughs> which, was, which was interesting is we'll start to get into the, uh, the connected universe, as we That's kind of great. go through, you know, cause Tarantino is kind of famous for his connected universe. And so it starts to make sense that those scripts are connected to his, his larger, you know, larger story, larger universe, mm-hmm. but they're, they're filmed out of order and with, you know, different directors. And so like, you know, true romance, uh, you know, is Larry Lawrence from reservoir dogs which is takes place about the same time, but they're about, you know, 30 years different in age. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff.
1: And it's not like a Marvel Universe thing where they, no. you know, it just happens to be, you know, they're taking yeah. elements from, because he wrote like, you know, he and Roger Avery wrote like, like this big massive script and then they would just pull it apart and sold part of it as true romance. and Then part of it became Natural Born Killers. And then, you know, I didn't went know that. And, I believe that's yeah, and, and then I think there was, that's why there was some conflict between him and Roger Avery down the road. But <laughs>
4: and, you know, one thing about pulp fiction is him, uh, in a diner. Didn't he? Didn't he uh, end up getting arrested for beating the shit out of it? Was it Roger Avery? No,
1: it was that was um, uh, Don Murphy, who was like oh, one of the producers yeah, of yeah. That there's a great <laughs> book about the making of Natural Born Killers, and they talk about that. <laughs>
3: uh, which, which, by Red the way, Boy, we are we are doing every Tarantino movie. Plus the non-directed mm-hmm. Tarantino movies, so we'll be talking about True Romance. We'll be talking about Nashville-born killers. We'll be talking about uh, Dust All Dawn, Four Rooms. Am I missing any others? Are we doing the Golden Girls episode where he plays an Elvis impersonator? <laughs> I think we should absolutely
1: do that as an extra. <laughs> I think we should.
4: bonus episode?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure so it's we'll on need.
3: YouTube. <laughs> and in case you're wondering out there, we are doing them in their order of release in theaters. So right. not... Uh, otherwise, we'd be doing uh, Django Unchained tonight. That's... That would right, be. yeah, I guess that would be oh, first uh, chronologically. <laughs> be chronologically. Followed
1: by Inglorious <laughs> Um
4: Reservoir Dogs opened in 19 theaters, so it was a pretty small opening yeah. in uh, it, it, when when it when it came out. It made kind of
3: crazy because it actually has a cast. It, it, well, these it, are these are not unknowns. In no, I mean, uh, mo- I mean Harvey Cartel in Jim 1992 Hoffman. was a pretty big name.
1: And a lot of it is thanks to Keitel. Yeah. Because he's the one who helped him cast the movie and get the. He flew Quentin and to New York and they cast Buscemi and then got the script of Tim Roth and I think brought Madsen in. And so, yeah. But he, I, I think without Harvey Keitel, this movie either would not have been made or would not be the movie we're talking about now. No. It might have been like a very low budget movie with as, no name
4: actors. As the myth goes, is basically Quentin had sold. Um, well, Tony Scott had seen the script for Reservoir Dogs and True Romance, and Tony Scott wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs. And Quentin oh, thank said... thank God no. he didn't.
3: And I like Tony Scott, but thank God.
4: <laughs> well, Quentin said, no, that's the one I want to direct. That's, mm-hmm. that's going to be my first film. And so he sold him True Romance, and so Tony Scott went and made True Romance. Quentin Tarantino got paid $30,000 which was the guild minimum at the time and his oh, plan wow. was to take that money and and um, and shoot Reservoir Dogs himself which right. is partially why Reservoir Dogs is sort of written the way it is where it is basically all in one building it's all in one yes. room it's cheap to shoot that you know you could you could you don't have a bunch of sets that you have to build or places that you have to sort of It's a stage play, play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've it talked is. about that.
3: You it's never see the heist, you know. You you no. see the aftermath of it. No, you you could absolutely and 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 Sal and I have talked about this, you know, leading up to this episode. You could absolutely do this movie as a stage play. Oh you know, yeah, it has I been have, done as a stage play,
4: and and I think he's planning on doing it as a play. But it was done. Uh, it was done as a um, an all black cast had done it they, there was a production oh, of that it was pretty yeah. well it's been done a couple of times as a play yet. um mr white yeah, was i think best. i think not that he was necessarily a a huge fan of like plays but he just i think he was just being practical and the idea of like yeah. i i'm gonna try and make the coolest movie that i can on the lowest budget so that i don't have to deal with anyone getting in my way i want to make the movie that right. i make. Mm-hmm.
1: I read somewhere that somebody wanted to buy it. I forget who, some studio or producer, but they wanted the ending to be like the sting, where after everyone's shot, then it's revealed that it was all faked somehow and they all get up and wipe off
3: the squibs. And
1: yeah, and they they said there's no, and I think they offered a fair amount of money and they're
3: like, no, that's not happening. No, this is is not a happy ending movie.
4: He had to uh he you know he had to fight Harvey Weinstein uh for the ear cutting scene, the, the mm-hmm. very iconic Madsen's torture scene. And um Weinstein didn't want that in the film. He thought it was too much, it was over the line, and and Quentin fought him for it and kept it in, and thankfully so. yeah,
3: yeah. well he did and he didn't. What do you mean? Well- you, mean yeah. you don't I see? I mean it? that's the bro- that's the brilliance yeah. of that scene. That's why you know I, I threw out the, the stage play reference is that they shoot that in such a way that it doesn't graphically show him w- cutting that no it mirrors mirrors off. Capacity, yeah. Yeah.
4: You don't yeah. see you don't physically see. It pans him. up and and it, comes. Yeah, through, yeah.
3: yeah. everyone's yeah. aware of what's going on. It's yeah. It it's, makes it more horrific. Right? Oh yeah. That's the, that's the brilliance of that scene. It's the very Hitchcock type you know, camera work that makes, it only makes you imagine it being oh, more horrific. Worse than, than it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. When I saw that in the theater, you could feel the entire theater just pushing back into their seats. during that. <laughs> I mean, it was silent. Listen to Steelers wheel. <laughs> I, <know. laughs>
4: I think uh, I've read like Madsen didn't even want to do the scene. Like he was having a hard time with it. He thought it was too much and he was squirmish about doing it. And, really? and yeah. Uh, as the legend goes, once again, I think we're going to, this is going to be a running theme with Quentin Tarantino films, the legend, there is a the lot legend of, legend. there is a lot of myth. And I think Tarantino cultivates that and, and I think so too. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Tarantino's fan base cultivates that yeah. too. So it's, yeah. and
4: I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I have no problem with that. It's just recognizing that, Hey, yeah. this may or may not be truth, but it's the story and it's all about a good story. Right. So exactly. Uh, so the story goes that Madsen um, wouldn't uh, rehearse the dance because he's like, I, I'm not a dancer. I don't know what to do. And, uh, so the this the final shot is the first time that he did the dance.
3: Oh, really? Oh, wow. He has wow. not rehearsed
4: that before. And it?
3: I mean, is that a, like a career defining scene? You know, I'm just think about like you know at the Oscars <laughs> the year that Michael Madsen passes away. If they were going to show like the scene that defines his career it's that I mean that's the scene that's, that's, that's the, the scene one. I mean yeah when he dies it'll
1: say Michael Madsen the actor who cut off an ear in turn. you know I mean that'll I, I mean he's done <laughs> I mean, other stuff but that's what you remember it's like I say oh, he was so in Free fucking,
2: Willy
4: so fucking great in this movie though I mean oh. so I've watched this movie probably Are you gonna in-
3: bite little doggy Oh, he's so good.
4: <laughs> You're gonna bark all day, little doggy. Um, but I mean, he's so good and so cool and so he is. He is to me. Uh, what's his name? The actor. I, I I always forget the name of the actor. Uh, I wrote it down just so I wouldn't forget. Um, Robert Mitchum. He's Robert yeah. Mitchum meets Elvis.
1: Yeah, that's, I would, That's good. That's very good.
4: You know, Night of the Hunters. That psychotic, cold. Robert Mitchum, who's also super cool, like, just it, just you look at him, and he's just yeah. fucking oozing cool. Um, and that was Michael Madsen in this movie. When he comes on screen, you know, you just that scene alone, when he's standing there with the, with the big kahuna burger.
3: Uh, he's the, the f- guy that f- goes f- into the bar and gets any woman that he wants. He's the guy that the trained gunslinger shoots first because he's the most dangerous guy in the room, mm-hmm. right? He, uh, he's just amazing. And yeah, yeah, so I think this is... I, I don't know of
4: another role. I mean, he's in, in Tombstone, uh, I think, right? He's in... Uh, or no, Wyatt Earp. He's not in Tombstone. Yeah. He's in Wyatt Earp.
1: He's, well, in, he's in Kill Bill uh,
4: 2. Right.
1: And he's really good, but playing a completely different character. Yeah. Like almost the opposite of Mr. Blunt, like somebody who's kind of been beaten by life. And, yeah. You know.
4: Um, I, Yeah, I don't see him surpassing... At this point, I think his career is... You know, kind of on the downward spiral, we've probably seen the best of any work that Ma- Michael Madsen might do. But that scene for sure is going to be what people will remember. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's amazing. And, that you know, that was the thing, like watching this movie again. Like I said, I've I, I watched it. I don't know how many times. So, and I just yeah. watched it Friday night. I watched it again. I'm like, OK, I'm going to sit down. I'm really going to watch it. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to write notes. I took two pages of notes as I I was Well, just I wanted to watch it in a different way because I've always watched it simply, you know, just to enjoy it, not to analyze it in any way or think about it too deeply. Just sort of I enjoy it for what it is. and But I wanted to sort of look at it from a different perspective and and a little more analytical and just sort of um, try and understand it more. And, man, I got to say, like – everyone talks about this being such an amazing first film for a director. And it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, for the most part, people always talk about the, the great style, the, the incredible violence, the, the efficiency of, of, you know, what he filmed and, and the dialogue, obviously. And you have these great performances, but I got to say, after watching it again and sort of looking at it even more this time, it's really bril- brilliantly paced, and, yeah. and he really uses the scenes to evoke emotion in such a brilliant way. Like you, that opening scene when they're sitting around the diner mm-hmm. and they're talking <laughs> and bullshit, and they're just yeah. you know six the seven Madonna, eight,
3: the Madonna speech, the Madonna,
4: Madonna thing. thing, all all that whole conversation. Steve Buscemi, Mister Pink. Not tipping, yeah, which
1: adds a little tension, like right from the what do beginning. You, mean you don't tip, I mean, it, you know it adds like <laughs> these guys are not buddies
4: right, necessarily, and so. but it it makes you like them mm-hmm. They're charming and funny, and you like these guys. you yeah, do you like them.
3: hanging out with them, yeah, you're, oh, yeah.
4: you're, you're hanging well, around is,
3: isn't girl. isn't that the crux of the story? is that is that Tim Roth and Larry, uh, Mr. Orange and Mr. White? become friends. They actually, they really truly do become friends. And this is the kind of first movie that I can remember that there are no heroes in this movie. Everyone is likable and fucking despicable all at the same time.
4: Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're likable in different ways for sure. Um, as well. Uh, I think, you know, Harvey Keitel's character, uh, Mr. Orange or Mr. White is mm-hmm. is likable very much because of his, um, you know, honesty and his his loyalty. You know, he's yeah. he's incredibly loyal to his friends, and as you said, the, he becomes friends with Tim Roth's character, and they and he shows him loyalty to the point where, you know, he's he's going to defend him against his boss you know at the end of this thing and and we all by that time know oh. he's wrong it's
1: so i mean and that's why you're like your heart is up breaking in that scene because yeah. you're like you can see how much harvey Keitel loves him yes. and yeah. and you're like i mean, remember when i first saw it the fact when they reveal that tim roth is the cop you're like it was really surprising and then Whoa. at the end when he's like talking <laughs> he's defending him and you're like oh you're you're sacrificing everything for someone who's lying to you and
3: yeah, yeah. You and yeah. You I up. mean it it is a father son relationship It is very much.
4: Yeah. I was going to say that the that the scenes where he's he first drags him into the 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 warehouse and Tim Roth is screaming and crying and bleeding and he's 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 like almost like a child he, I mean doesn't go as far as begging for his mother, but he almost might as well. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, he's so afraid he's going to die. And the entire time, Harvey Keitel is is this this father figure who's basically trying to convince him yeah. it's going to be okay, yeah. son. It's going to yeah, be okay. I know,
1: you're I shot in the turns. gut.
3: It's going to yeah yeah. yeah. And I know well, the first, first, but you're going to be okay.
4: Yeah,
1: and then you know, when you were talking about the whole opening, and then we get them walking, and then playing the song, and then it just <laughs> smash cuts to the car. With Tim Roth in the back, I mean, there's so much blood. And Harvey Gattel's, like, holding his hand. You know, that's your first big impression of Harvey Gattel. He's, like, holding his hand, trying to calm him down, talking to
4: him. Are you a doctor?
3: Yeah.
1: Are you a doctor? Are Are you a doctor? doctor? Where it's, like, you know,
3: anyone else, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink, you know, obviously Mr. Brown, none of those guys would have cared. No, not at all. They probably would have kicked him to the curb. Because he was slowing them down. Yeah. Cop or not. I mean, yeah, they just would have. No, no. Even doesn't matter. It it just just because he was going to slow them down from this busted heist, they would have left him on the on the side of the road and and just, you know, tried to hightail it out of there. I mean, that's yeah. That's the thing about Mr. White is that he actually that's why you like him is that he's not an asshole.
1: And that's the whole reason for the code names is so they don't know each other. So if one of them gets arrested, he has no information. And Mister White's the only one who tries to he tries to tell Mister Pink his name. And he's like, "I don't want to fucking know your name," you know. And yeah,
4: yeah. the great, the great. Uh, what is he? What does he say? Uh, the, the whole well, one I I think it's har- one of Harvey Keitel's best performances ever. <laughs>
1: he's oh, really good. Question. It's I'm, a really well rounded performance. It is.
4: It's extremely well. He, there's all sorts of emotions. He shows a wide range of abilities. It's he's not just a one-note guy, which I think a lot of times he kind of is. In he's a lot
3: more of- one-note in Pulp Fiction that we'll talk about than this, you know. Right. And, and he's, he's
1: kind of is, like a yeah. cartoon character, yeah, in Pulp Fiction, but here. Yeah.
3: But even
4: his other work, I think, you know, even Mean Streets, you know, which is maybe one of his best movies ever, he's still. Uh, very singular in the range of of things that he gives you. Where in this, he, he's given you all sorts of stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you, you, it's the best it, role
3: in the movie. If you, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah it is. It is in in front of back, or, what do you want to play. Oh, I want to play Mister mm-hmm. White. He's the most. He's the most complicated. He's got the best lines. He's it's got stuff. all those great oh. scenes
1: with Joe. You know, that shows the oh, past, yeah. and he's a guy with a history. And he's, you know, he's not. He's not really a nice guy. I mean, you see that he's, you know, he's a thug like the rest of them, but he can show a caring side. And
4: yeah,
1: Yeah. he's a professional,
4: he's not gonna, he's not a psychopath, exactly.
1: He doesn't, yeah. If you know, he tells him, like, what do you do? You, you know, you break the guy's finger or something, you know, not you don't immediately
4: kill him, cut off off his pinky, that's right, cut off his
3: finger, and see, wears women's underwear. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite. It's my favorite line but the, of the movie. It's one of my. You know, it, you know, talking about you know favorite wines, favorite scenes. We talked about the Madonna scene, uh, which, by that, the fact, Madonna
4: told him was
3: wrong. <laughs> doesn't, it theory, doesn't matter. It doesn't no, matter. It's, it's it's just funny. It's, it's, it's so good. It's, it's when,
4: in the zeitgeist now. So no, no, I know. It's yeah, just yeah, funny yeah. that in the managed. newsroom we used to just
1: use the line. We would just say hence like a virgin that's all we would say Tents, <laughs> like a virgin
4: i got big dick over here i got
3: what are your favorite scene what what are your top three favorite scenes in the movie my top three favorite scenes um I think every, everything is very scene based. Yeah, it's very.
4: You know
1: what scene I I mean, I love the opening. I also love the scene when Mr. Blonde is out of prison and he's meeting with
3: Joe uh, and Nice Guy. Joe
1: and Nice Guy. Eddie. And then Nice Guy Eddie comes in and they start busting each other's balls and then they just start fighting like and Joe gets mad and then they start fighting and then Joe gets mad and I, I that just cracks me up. Again, it It makes them feel like, you know, so many heist movies, the people are the heist. You know, their characters are designed like, he's the safecracker, he's this, he's that. But this one, they feel like guys with lives who then were hired to be part of this heist. You get a sense that they have a history to them and they have their own personalities.
3: That scene is also really important. I was thinking about that scene, especially, Will, because you get to later in the movie where, where Tim Roth had shot Mr. Mister Blonde because he right. was going to kill the cop. He was going to light him on fire. When Chris Penn comes in and and is, and sees Blonde dead, now you know that that wasn't just another thug. That right, was, right, right. That was like his childhood friend.
4: Chris Penn, mm-hmm. nice guy Eddie sit there and tells him, he's like, wait a minute, let me get this fucking straight. You're telling me this, this guy... Man, that just did four years for my father and didn't say a word now that he's out and we're taking care of him he's gonna
3: rip us off that's what you're fucking telling me like you know he gives himself and it's even even more than that because that scene you saw it wasn't just that he was loyal to the family. They were like brothers because brothers do that. Brothers wrestle on the floor in an office Mm -hmm. because they're dipshit brothers. Right. And so that
4: Chris Penn Penn was great for that role too. He was the right like weird energy. Mm -hmm. nice guy, Eddie, you know, like you could, you could really feel with nice guy, Eddie that, yeah, he was kind of a tough guy, but he was also kind of a daddy's boy. Right. And there was you know what I mean? Like he had the tough guy
3: attitude, but Sal he's knows who he reminds me of. It's a person. It's, it's a person that we know in our in our actual he's, real lives. Probably, <laughs> he is that guy.
4: <laughs> back it up, you know, if you really yeah. shit yeah. down. But yeah.
1: And he uh, was never like nice guy. He was he would hang with these guys and hang with his dad and help organize it. But he was never going to be part of the heist. Right. No, right. He just wasn't that kind of guy.
4: No, but Chris Penn hard. has the perfect energy for that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean, like he, and I don't know if it's part of just being Sean Penn's brother and living and like, growing, <laughs> having up, your
1: balls busted all day every day.
4: <laughs> you're, you're right on the cusp of that world, but you're not really mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know? Like your yeah. brother's super famous, almost like I don't. You know. were
1: in Footloose, you know, when you were thinner. <laughs> <and>
3: <laughs> he wasn't Footloose. Yeah, he he plays the perfect son of a hardcore gangster who's mm-hmm. not quite as hard as his dad.
1: You know, and watching, uh, just watching The Sopranos, he seems like one of the kind of side gangsters, because he's always wearing the jogging suit, and he kind of takes yeah. it all casually, but if he has to get tough, he can get tough, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to do really more work than is necessary.
3: Yeah. It, yes, exactly. Was this, brand brand first, was this the first, and, and, and back to the, the scenes, I mean, every scene could be a top three scene, but I agree, Will. Um, was this the first time that you were aware of Steve Buscemi As an actor? No, I remember him from,
1: um, uh, um, um, uh, not Miller's, uh, Barton Fink. He's Chet, the doormat or the belt cap. And, but here's, but actually this is what I remember about Steve Buscemi. He, when we were in college, we had some tape we rented over and over called, Filmhouse Fever, and it was one of those tapes you used to get in the 80s that had just clips from like horror movies and crazy movies and Herschel Gordon Lewis movies and weird trailers, you know, and stuff like that. And Steve Buscemi, in what must have been his first gig, like, hosted this. Like, he and his buddy <laughs> played guys who got, like, stuck in a theater, and it was really stupid, but I remember thinking, that guy looks just like a young John Waters. It was like, I was remember a guy. So when he would show up in small mm-hmm. roles, I'd be like, that's that guy. That's that Steve yeah. Buscemi. Like he has a small part in um, Scorsese's uh, part in um, New York Stories. He plays like a street poet or something. I remember seeing that guy. So when I saw he was in Reservoir Dogs, I'm like, oh, I love Steve Buscemi. This guy. But okay. that was the biggest role I'd seen him in for sure. Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, he was the, It was definitely a first to me. Which later, later on, is before we wrap up, where we were going to talk about our uh, our first impressions and and now how we look at them at the movie. Through a 30-year lens, which is kind of crazy. Which by the way, That's I insane. bought the uh, in preparation of this. Look at because this. Because I'm an idiot. I bought the 15th anniversary Blu-ray edition. Wow. 15. Came out, yeah, which is almost 15 years old. Yeah. And so I bought it because of the special features, so I could watch some of the documentaries and, and backstory. Um, don't do that. Just just stream it. So the <laughs> documentary. The documentary is terrible. Is it terrible?
1: <laughs> it's I, terrible. Got it. I whenever it came out, when they re-released it on or released it maybe no, it must have been a re release on DVD and they did like one for each color, like a Mr. Orange, a Mr. Pink, a Mr. White, a Mr. <laughs> Blonde, you know, whatever. I was, that's why I was still working at the paper. So I was kind of like, I was like hoping, oh, I hope I get Mr. White or Mr. Blonde. And I think I got Mr. Orange, which is fine, but you know. <laughs> so I am a big like orange TV. <laughs>
3: I liked Tim Roth a lot. He's the protagonist of the story.
1: Well, he is, is although he's he, the he, one you he,
3: kind of, he's like the
1: hero, but you also kind of feel like he betrayed Harvey Keitel <laughs> so badly. I guess that's
3: yeah. I mean, is is Tim Roth or Harvey Keitel the protagonist of the story? Yeah. If you're I don't gonna know. Assign if you're going to assign the role of protagonist. I think the warehouse is the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> but Tim Roth's character is a—he's
1: a Marvel Comics fan. We're led to assume, right? Because doesn't he have a Silver Surfer poster?
0: Mm-hmm. And then he
1: says, he says <laughs> Joe reminds him of the Thing, right? Yeah. Ben Grimm's so. the
3: fucking Thing. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of Tarantino. Comic I have, references.
4: I have some uh, a trivia about why he put that in that scene in the apartment. Which that apartment was a uh, office above the warehouse. Oh, really? Yeah, of course it was. They just made it look like an apartment because it was just cheaper (laughs) than getting an apartment.
3: And that movie magic, baby. That's early '90s movie magic. Mm -hmm.
4: The the warehouse was a. Um, it was a warehouse for a funeral parlor. So, if you notice, there's a
1: hearse in there, isn't there?
4: Michael Madsen sitting on a hearse, but not only I didn't notice it until I watched it this time, but in the background of almost every scene, there is four coffins on like little pallets in the background, standing up vertically, really. And those were just all there, and so they just used them.
1: I'm sure, endless. Internet if, essays have been written on the symbolism of those four coffins yeah, and why Quentin know. put them in and all that.
3: Gee, they <laughs> were just you, there. You, you've seen the thing about the different colored soaps, or whatever I have the seen that in is. the room
1: where Bouchereau
4: and, and Caidell
3: are. Yeah, it's the orange. That's an embalming.
4: Green. That's an embalming room. That's
1: crazy. Okay, okay. That room. I did what, notice what? the hearse, but I never noticed the coffins.
4: The coffins yeah. are there. They're they're like there's like four of them, and they're standing up vertically on like these little. Palette stands, and so they're kind of covered in like paper or something. Mm-hmm. But when you actually look, go back and look, you can tell they're fucking coffins. And it's like, oh wow, that's kind of crazy. Nice.
3: Um, Is there one going, coffin for every guy?
4: Going back to um, <laughs> what you were asking about favorite scenes, I I would say, and it wasn't until this watching the movie this time that this was one of my favorite scenes. But the whole scene, the whole sequence of Tim Roth's character telling the backstory, mm-hmm. the thing, learning the, story. The, yeah. the anecdote, and then him telling the story to them, uh, ended up being one of my favorite scenes. And I think the reason it was is one, it's a great story, and it's a great scene, and it's a, and it's a, and, and the idea of like he's. We're seeing a scene that he's telling these guys, which is a lie.
1: Right. And he's like in the scene as he's telling the lie. And yeah.
4: And we feel nervous for him in a fake story. Right. Exactly. In a movie. It's this very meta, you know, very condensed sort of weird thing. But the reason I love it so much is that he's using it to get in with these guys by basically the the sort of joke of the story is that these dumb fucking cops that's right didn't know that i had a pound of weed in my bag and i was able to walk in there and wash my hands and walk out and i got away with it meanwhile he's a cop telling it to a bunch of crooks so that he can get on their side but it's so there's that part of it but then if you look at it from another perspective it's tarantino uses that that sort of when we find out who the who the cop is right right Mm -hmm. find out tim roth is the and that's when you go from uh that scene and the scene right before the scene right before that i believe if i remember correctly is when madsen takes him out to this car and he's got the cop in the back of his car and then they drag the cop in and they start beating the shit out of this cop yeah that's that's when you start going oh shit these guys aren't charming these guys are hard Mm -hmm. These are bad dudes. I mean, even
1: Harvey Keitel, who you kind of had warm feelings to, he's, you know, he's he's just as happy to torture the cop as the rest, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, mean, they say say it all. Um, I forget. It's hard because, you know, you want to say, oh, it happens at this point in the movie, but it's nonlinear storytelling, so. Right. Fuck, it could be in the first (laughs) act. I don't know. Uh, Where, uh, was it Keitel that asked Steve Buscemi, did you kill anyone? And he says, I didn't, I didn't didn't kill, you know, I didn't kill real people, people, people. just cops. Yeah. And and that, it is such a perfect line of dialogue because it, it, I mean, it just sets it up that it's like, well, that's,
4: that's right before that. That's, and that's what I was talking about earlier when I was saying, like watching it this time, I started to see, wow, even at this young age, Tarantino had this mastery of telling you how you're supposed to feel about these characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. giving you a, a ride emotionally. He's like, I'm going to make you like them. Then I'm going to make you not like them. Then I'm going to make you like them again. And then they're all going to die.
3: Yeah. And, and it's he amazing. Does, does it so expertly later in the movie where, where Tim Roth has to shoot the woman in the car that gut shots him. Right. And you see that expression on his face and shit. What have I done? And it's all the blurring of lines of good and evil and what you have to do to survive. And that's the moment where you're like, he is no different from them because he's, he just killed someone because he had to finish the job, which well, He
4: doesn't, no he makes, different he than makes, them. He makes all sort of tough decisions. He, oh, yeah. You know, he's standing there when the, the, the very, you know uh, and it's the scene, it's the same scene and we'll talk about city on fire. Uh, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk mm-hmm. about that movie and the and obviously the things that Tarantino took from that movie. Um, but the scene where you know, the the after the car crash where he goes around the corner with the two pistols and he chow yun fats him, do, 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 yeah, and, cool. and Roth is just standing there looking at him, you know, blowing away his fellow police officers, mm-hmm. and there's nothing he can do. And then later on, when he's laying there in a, in a pile of blood, and and the you know, the cops getting his ear cut off and getting tortured. And almost set on fire, he finally stops you know the guy from setting him on fire. But that was his breaking point. Everything else he let go. Mm -hmm. Or well, maybe you know, we don't know if he was awake the entire time or conscious, but you kind of assume he was. Yeah, and he would have let it. Yeah, you assume,
3: yeah. Yeah. So so at that that point, if he runs back the clock like three minutes earlier, just shoot Mr. Blonde before he executes him, free the cop and get the fuck out of there, right.
1: And I don't know if he could free the cop. I mean, he was pretty, he wasn't yeah. moving. You know, Tim Russ spends the whole movie laying there on the floor, essentially. But
4: why wait till then? I don't know. I think that was the line. I think yeah. that was the yeah. line. Like, well.
1: He was okay. going to die. He's like, going to yeah.
4: die. He's going to burn this guy alive. I can't let that happen. He can live here. I mean, he even says it. Fuck you. I'm fucking dying and, here. Uh, Quit crying about your fucking ear. I'm mm-hmm. fucking dying here. So suck yeah. it up. I need you to hang in there, Marvin.
3: Marvin of Marvin, 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 Marvin Nash. Marvin Nash. Marvin oh, Nash. by the way, Kirk, Kirk Boltz uh, played Marvin Nash. Look at that dude's with, or his uh, IMDB page. He has done a ton of TV stuff after Reservoir Dogs. Really? really? So, Kirk uh, Boltz. Yeah. Huh? So yeah I'm going to ask... Uh, uh,
4: uh, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Will, uh, have you seen um, The Big Combo?
1: But I have, but it's been a while. I saw it on TCM. Um.
4: So that's one of the movies that is, is often referenced when talking about Reservoir Dogs because of the torture scene. There's a Lieutenant Diamond who's played... Um, oh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head.
1: Is it Cornell... I forget who is. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, Cornell Wilde? Cool. Yeah.
4: Yes, Cornell Wilde plays Lieutenant Diamond, and there's a scene where he's being tortured by the bad guy uh, who is wonderfully played in that film he the the guy who plays the uh the villain in that mr brown which there's a little similarity there yeah mr. richard conte <laughs> yeah richard, richard conte he's awesome in it as the as the bad guy but he at one point he's torturing uh a wild I- he's tied up in a chair and they're torturing him but it's a it's a, it's i guess at the time maybe you know 1955 <laughs> it was, shocking or Shocking, but I was kind of surprised. It's like, oh, I thought this was going to be way more shocking. People are talking about this in relation to Reservoir Dogs. Like, this is nothing compared to what oh, happened. Oh, no, no. But the interesting thing is, is, as I'm watching it, I'm looking at, at Victor uh, – what was his name? Uh, uh, Conrad uh, – Oh, I'm Cornell Wild. Cornell Wild. I'm, I'm looking at him sitting in this chair, and if you go back and look at it, I, I swear – Tarantino must have cast the actor that played the cop yeah, to, to look, look like, looked him. like him. He
1: well, Quentin's like a huge movie fan, I'm sure. Yeah. He's I,
4: I would not be shocked if that was the case that he because he kind of looks like him in that movie. I'm like, I'm like, wow, that that there's definitely a similarity there. So it's kind of crazy, but that movie's you know, a little bit. Yeah, that-
1: it's it, inter- it's it's good. It's a, I mean it looks great. It's Joseph Lewis oh, okay. and it's got that great black and white photography. The movie when I was when I was watching Reservoir Dogs this time and was thinking about torture in films, um in <laughs> uh I've never heard Quentin cite this movie, and I don't know if it was an influence or not, but have you ever seen Kiss Me Deadly, a film Noir with Ralph Meeker? And it's great. I mean
0: it's yeah,
1: really yeah. good. There's a great criterion disc, but there's a scene. Almost at the beginning, when these thugs are torturing a young woman who turns out is a young Chloris Leachman, actually, but they torture her and they, it, they never come. You never see quite what happens, but they, they torture her to death. You get the assumption and they do kind of pan the camera down. So all you see is her feet like in a chair and they're doing something you don't oh, know what
4: oh no, yeah yeah, yeah. That's, so it, yeah,
1: it still is kind of disturbing because you're like because Your you know they let it you decide what are they doing it's to her that's that. so horrible that you I, can't
4: see well i just had that conversation with a friend of mine who had just saw pulp fiction for the first time ever oh and wow. She, wow yeah she had never seen it and i and she her first question was well what was in the box what was in the briefcase and i, said, <laughs> ah! and I tried to explain to her it doesn't matter it's, no but, but then i was like the point is no matter what he puts in there, if he is, sh- if he does show you what's in there, it'll be a disappointment. It'll be a disappointment. Your mind, and he knew that, and yeah. he knew that in Reservoir Dogs. You know, pulling away from the ear scene, he knew that was worse than if he shows you the ear. He knew he knew he couldn't shoot a uh, the the crime scene. You know, the the bank heist, the way that he would have wanted to show it,
3: he couldn't, it. Afford, he couldn't hey. afford to. Right, right. But, but he didn't. So he doesn't show it. Yeah. So you and you paint it in
1: your head, like about all the people getting shot and this and right. that. You you know, I can picture it, that heist it, in my head, and I'm sure you guys have your own version of it. And we we've and all, to we've
3: be all better. seen a TV or movie bank heist or jewel heist. So I I I see it as a he didn't want to, you know, he probably didn't have the budget to do it. I don't think he had the money. But yeah, but B, you know what? Cut the fat away from the story that yeah. you're trying to tell. The heist is not important. All this movie's not to... about the heist. All you need to know the is that it's uh-huh. a bad heist. It goes bad.
1: You know, I feel like an idiot, by the way. Let me just jump back to Kiss Be Deadly for a second. Of course oh. Quentin has seen it because in the movie there is a box that they open and it glows and everybody <laughs> wants it. So it, it right, turns now, out it's, it's like radioactive that, material. So that, it's not a mystery. That, that, but. Yeah,
4: oh, I guess that's soul in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kiss Me Deadly ends on the beach house, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, 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 yes. yeah, I've seen that. yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Quentin's seen it, but
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. What's in the briefcase? Whatever, whatever you want. I mean, yeah. more or on that
3: next month. Whenever we talk, that's about- right. We'll There's-
1: talk. Th- we'll talk about that next month.
3: give <laughs> me the
2: fucking thing hey, what the hell do you think you're doing? You me my book I'm sick of fucking hearing it. You. I'll give it back to you when we leave. What do you mean when we leave? Give me it back now. For the past 15 minutes now, you've been droning on about names. Toby. 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 Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Chung. Fucking Charlie Chan. I've got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear. And Toby the Jack, I don't know what, coming out of my right.
3: Hey, every every episode, I want to talk about the soundtrack. (gasps) Look at it. It just happens to be there. And it just happens to be there because I'm a silly uh, collector guy, and I will buy all of the. I have almost all of these on vinyl, which I imagine would be the preferred Tarantino way of listening. Oh, I'm sure. To a Tarantino soundtrack would be would be vinyl. Um, everyone talks about the Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs soundtrack, and I do think it's 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 great. There's a couple dips in there. There's a there's a couple tracks that I was just like, yeah. Um, your guys's remembrance of the soundtrack and what you think of it now, because I'm sure that we've all listened to it here in the last week.
0: Little Green.
3: Um. Yeah, I
4: mean the 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 opening of Little Green Bag is oh, yeah, just sort of iconic. But at the time, I I don't know that I'd ever even heard that song before. You know, you uh, know where
1: I had heard that song. It was on. One of the first records I ever owned. It was on a Goofy Greats record from KTEL. That for some reason that song was so goofy, and it's promoter. really like kind yeah. of an ominous little weird song when you hear it in this context. But yeah, yeah.
4: that was the thing was about it. Little Green Bag is every time I hear it now, when when the when the melody of that song changes and it goes into that second part, mm-hmm.
0: it, I always think
4: of mm-hmm. um, is it the Tom Jones song? Uh... It sounds like the same melody. Like um, shit. I, now I need to hear it. To I can't. I can't <laughs> think of it in my head now.
3: Um, when there's, now there's I'm just it's a, like, I am a simple man from Southern Illinois. So for <laughs> me, seventies seventies music was like class seventies classic rock. Um, it was you know Zeppelin, Aerosmith you know go down go down the line this was as a, a 18 19 year old this was a weird introduction to all of like the sub like 70s yeah. hits and See, it made me dig deeper into stuff that I had never heard. I thought I loved seventies music. I, I no think I'm I talking about. I'm a little older than you boys, a couple of years, and I remember hearing a lot
1: of these songs on AM radio, like yeah, in yeah. my parents' car. It wasn't like Zeppelin and stuff. This is what mom and dad's radio station I mean, played. You, had heard, you had heard
3: Coconut before?
1: Uh, yeah, I heard a lot I, of these songs, not often, but yeah, they they all had a real familiarity to me.
4: Yeah, I think the one other than obviously um the uh stuck in the middle or stuck in the middle with yeah. you i yeah. had heard that song but obviously it takes on a whole different like i can never i can never hear that song without thinking of that scene now right. you know, i'll never I'll. but the the one that stuck with me for the longest time was um when they're driving around case in the jewelry store and the uh the ugachaka chaka Uga chaka yeah, Uga. that song yeah. was like what is this? I had never heard. I'm like, this is a fucking awesome song when I first heard that, and that song <laughs> stuck with me forever. And then, of course, James Gunn ended up using it.
1: Yeah, Guardians. it's like the lead, it's a first song in Guardians, yeah. isn't it? Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, hooked on a feeling.
4: Hooked on
3: a yep. feeling. Yep. I, and that you know, this this movie, I mean, there are certain like Tarantino staples. Now he he pulls at those and redefines himself, which we'll talk about for the next 15 months but that kind of almost instantly became a Tarantino staple is how he would interweave music into the storyline. And the, and in Reservoir, they talk about K-Billy super sounds. Mm-hmm. M- Madsen uses that Steeler's Wheel song as this audible distraction probably like, to drown out the screams yeah. and it becomes part of that scene. There's so much about the music in this movie that isn't incidental. And we'll talk about it whenever we go to true romance that I felt like the music in that movie was used in a very Tony Scott way, which is very different than how Tarantino uses music. Well, he actually makes it a tangible interweaved part of the story. Well, I mean, right down to having Stephen Wright, you know,
1: hired yep. to do the DJ and to have the characters comment on the D. De- you know, like, hey, have you been listening to Sounds of the 70s this week? You know, I mean, it's you're right. It all really... It's part comes, of the script. You know, it's, it's, you know, he, it's diegetic music, which means it's part of the movie, as opposed to non-diegetic music, which is like the soundtrack.
4: Well, I think it's it,
1: the well, tip of the day.
4: <laughs> thank you, Will. <laughs> He's talked about... Um, that's his writing process. I mean, he... He will go and, you know, he's a collector. He's been a collector, you know, and he's, he's a guy that appre- has appreciations for things from years past, whether it's musics, whether it's mu- movies, whether it's, you know, books, whatever it is. And, and he's talked about how he will write by going and starting. The first thing he does is he starts digging through his albums. Mm-hmm. He'll put something on. And when something hits him, a scene will come to him. And then that's, you know, that's, part of that so it's it's ingrained in the films i think it's it's why it works so well is because he's literally literally writing the scenes to that soundtrack he's thinking of the soundtrack as he's creating the the story as he's creating the world the characters and everything else it's it's such a huge part of it for him so i think that's why he he you know always has been sort of known for that of just like
3: and and it, it kind of adds to the mystique because he he doesn't use the obvious choice Mm-mm. for a song. He finds something that I mean Little Green Bag. Who would right. ever think about that for that scene? But now can you ever imagine it without that song? Right?
1: And you know this is it's interesting because with this one he's almost more I mean, not limited, but he sort of limits himself. Where these are all songs of the '70s you might hear on the radio, and then you know, Pulp Fiction gets away from that, and then you have movies like, like uh, Django Unchained or Reservoir Dogs, or not Reservoir, um, Inglourious Bastards, where there are songs that are completely period inaccurate that he makes
3: work. But then anachronistic.
1: Yeah, but then he comes back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's almost like Back to Reservoir Dogs where it is as if you were listening to the radio during the time yeah. this movie takes place, right yeah. down in the I, commercials. And
3: I think, and and we'll talk about this more, but not too much, uh, because I think this is one a rabbit hole that we could get lost a in. Rabbit it, it a rabbit
0: hole? On this show?
3: It is a Tarantino a rabbit, hole. Um, a rabbit it, hole. It's just, it's a staple of his m- movie making, and he seems to take the soundtracks to his movies more seriously than, than any other director I've ever known where a soundtrack can almost be an afterthought, you know, the, or the, you know, the official soundtrack.
1: I think the other ones I would say are Scorsese, I think definitely puts a lot of thought into his soundtracks. And he was, I think he was maybe the, one of the first guys to use pop music Like, ironically, like a lot of that, you Mean Streets, Goodfellas has a lot of that. And um, the other one is, and it's not so much ironically, but I really think Wes Anderson does a good job with his soundtracks. I mean, he uses a lot of 60s British pop, like the Kinks and that kind of thing, and early Who, but he uses it. I think he uses it really well, too. I
3: I think that's one where, like, Scorsese was probably an influence on Tarantino. Tarantino was probably an influence on Wes Anderson. Probably, yeah, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, And James Gunn.
2: Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? Giggling like a bunch of young bros in the schoolyard. Now, well, let me tell a joke. Five guys sitting in a bullpen St. Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. What'd we do wrong? What should have we done? What didn't we do? Whatever that. It's your fault, my fault, his fault, all that bullshit. Finally, someone comes up with the idea. Wait a minute why well, we were planning this caper all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes got the message
3: so i mean do you want to talk about influences pre and and post do we want to move kind of into that, I a that we, bit. We, yeah, yeah i mean i you know i think obviously the
4: the and you can't talk about reservoir dogs at this point without talking about city on fire right. um you know if, if 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 you know anything about reservoir dogs and the history of it City on Fire is a 87 uh 1987 um uh, action movie with Chow Yun Fat uh and it, there are scenes that are literally taken from that movie and <laughs> and put reshot with with these actors and 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 that kind of thing and I mean and the
1: Mexican standoff really is you know that's Absolutely.
4: A, the Mexican the standoff the the, the the you know sort of uh Mr. Pink running down the street with the bag right. of diamonds. The the scene with Harvey Keitel opening up on the cops is shot for Damn. shot almost identical
1: from if you, Fire. if you go to the IMD page for *City on Fire*, here's the synopsis. I'm just going to read you the whole thing. An undercover cop infiltrates a gang of thieves who plan to rob a jewelry
4: store. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's no denying the similar. I mean, and it really like came to a head when there was like uh, you know uh, some film student put a youtube mm-hmm. together and it was called who do you think you're fooling and right. Was, right. like side by side comparisons of the two movies there's no question and weirdly enough like when it first came out Tarantino admitted it he said of course i love that movie i i steal from all movies i've right. he never he didn't deny it now as the years went on there's been other Sort of half denial, full denials, but there's no denying it. I mean, it's obviously he's done so. That being said, City on Fire is not a great movie. And no, it's it,
1: got great sequences, but it's it, not.
4: It, and, it's a, it, and it's a cool idea to some degree, but it's not a great It's a mediocre movie at best.
1: Yeah, it's uh, not. I mean, I remember like. Around the 1990s, when I first graduated college, came out here, got a job and everything. And that's when those Hong Kong movies were first coming to America, like Jackie Chan, Chow Yun-Fat, Chow Yun-fat. Um, John Woo and those. And it and I watched everyone I could find like on bootleg deep, bootleg VHS that you would buy comic book shows in that. And I saw City on a Fire and it was fun, but it was nowhere near, it wasn't like The Killer or Hard Boiled or Better Tomorrow, any of the right. really, really good. really good ones. Right.
4: Really good and 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 it's not reservoir dogs i mean no it no doesn't have the style it doesn't have the dialogue it doesn't have all of the emotional scenes and the emotional context that reservoir dogs has and obviously it didn't, it didn't, by this it didn't point, redefine a genre no it no, no. <laughs> so it's a young filmmaker that thought maybe he could get away with stealing from a different movie and you know artists steal i don't think right. that's anything new. Yeah. I don't think that is
3: certainly yeah, not. I mean, there's known. the, he stole it or it's an homage? No, he doesn't yeah, believe he in stole it. So he, <laughs> yeah, it's a little, I mean, it's a little more an homage, but again, he he
1: took it, but you know, it's not like he just remade that movie. He did yeah. something with it.
4: Yeah.
3: You know, he he can't, you yeah. made it. it it's kind of hard mm-hmm. to homage a movie that's only four years old, right? Yeah. That's a little more than a- <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, if you haven't seen City on Fire, it's, I guess it's worth watching just to sort of be like, oh, this did exist before Reservoir Dogs. It's obvious that he took elements and parts and full scenes. I mean, there's no question he yeah. took full scenes from it. So, I mean, is,
3: it, is this going to be a theme that we address and readdress probably almost no. every movie? I don't think so.
4: I don't uh, think... Nothing this egregious.
3: Yeah, well, yeah I, I mean, so, yeah, I agree. But but it becomes part of of like the Tarantino, you know, book is that, you know, it's 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 great music, that's, you know, great cultivated music, but he really does you pull from other movies. There's a lot of homage in there and that it kind of is is a minor theme through his movies that is is him kind of blatantly and nakedly showing off the influences that that inspired him for the movies that he makes.
1: I think so. But I mean, it's something like, like say kill bill. I mean, that movie is, it is, it's, I mean, it is its influences. I don't think he would deny it. I mean, it's a mishmash of spaghetti Westerns and samurai movies and Hong Kong action movie, you know, and anime and everything. But he, he takes all those elements and he delivers something new. And I, I think Sal's right. I think this is the one where he really could be accused of, just ripping off stuff. But <laughs> okay. he moves past it in his other, and even if he uses yeah. something, he puts a twist on it, and he, he delivers more than just a restaging of what came before. The, the, this is his Paul's Boutique? <laughs> yeah, I guess.
4: <laughs> uh Yeah, I mean, I think it's, like I said, it's a, it's a young filmmaker that that, you know, probably loved something and thought he could get away with it because it was not, at that time, he probably thought, Nobody's ever going to see City on Fire. Nobody's going to ever make this connection, but sure enough people did. Those
1: and, movies were not I and mean, you couldn't see them in America back then. Yeah. You know, and and this is all pre-DVD, so nobody expected this or streaming for that matter. You know, you didn't no think internet. you'd be able to see any worldwide movie. There was no I mean, yeah, there was no internet.
4: <laughs> I I'm sure if you go to, you know, if you look at other influences on this film, whether it's you know, The Killing Stanley Kubrick's amazing noir heist movie or Mm -hmm. Asphalt Jungle or I think to me one of the ones that is I think really influential is um, Kansas City Confidential. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the whole idea of you know someone hiring a bunch of guys anonymously to to set up a heist I mean that's Kansas City Confidential, and that that was well before City on Fire or Reservoir Dogs. Andy uses they don't know each other. You know they have fake names, they wear masks, um, and and there's you know that movie. The beginning of that movie is phenomenal. Like the first act is great, the actual heist, and then it kind of gets to be a little more of a typical sort of. uh, typical fare
1: uh, right but, yeah it kind of it can't hold the energy of that first yeah place. and it's yeah. and then if you yeah. know if you watch something like taking a pellet one two three which was not an obscure movie by any means i mean hey the characters are named blue and brown Ooh. and gray and i mean you
4: know it's i don't think he yeah i don't think he shies away certainly not at this point and i think he's obviously proven he is his own unique voice regardless <laughs> of what he may or may have taken or continues to take from from whatever movies. I I think that's nothing new in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's anything new in any art form. Like you're you're influenced by the things you love and then you know
3: you be
1: barely- I, I mean you know, I watched like, you know, Scorsese movies and, you know, I just, and I still think Scorsese an incredible director. And, but when I watched something, when I later got into stuff like French New Wave, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. This is like the scene transitions and the jump cuts is all like, and Scorsese would be the first one to say, yeah, hey, that's where I got it. French New Wave movies, you know.
4: Wait, I'm just I'm coming up with this shit on my own. Yeah.
1: You know, and both, and Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino have the fact in common that they're both, besides great directors they are in huge movie fans right i mean they they digest movies they collect movies they preserve movies i mean they live and breathe movies
3: so of course you know and, yeah i just i just see one being very new york and one being very yeah
1: and you know and the thing you know i mean if we want to switch to sort of influences in the other direction i mean how many movies ripped off reservoir dogs right but didn't bring anything yeah. interesting to it
3: yeah no you know no it um it it kind of helped redefine or, I don't define, uh, you know, genre of the the outlaw or rogue director of the early 90s, which there have been, you know, books Mm -hmm. written about and documentaries written about. Uh, You guys are way more knowledgeable about film and film history, so I'll just ask. Um, Reservoir Dogs was the first movie that I saw that, you know, went beyond flashback we all know a flashback but Reservoir Dogs really sliced up the movie and made non-linear storytelling something it, it, it presented non-linear storytelling in a way I had never seen it before mm-hmm. had that been used it did, did Tarantino really you know innovate that or is that once again kind of building on on other filmmakers I mean well like Sal mentioned The Killing Yeah,
1: you know Kubrick's movie it's all chopped up. Yeah, I mean, things okay. happen. You follow different characters. You double back, and you know this and that. I mean, you could argue Citizen Kane does the same thing because it tells a life story, different pieces, mm-hmm. and
4: I mean, it's. Yeah, been... I don't think he.
3: I don't think he invented non-linear storytelling. Yeah. I don't think it's, that it's maybe true. just the abruptness of how he does it. You know, to you,
4: I just you know, think I just yeah. think a lot of modern audiences in in. and and american audiences aren't used to that i don't think you saw a ton of it in american films because the american film studio system probably didn't think that that was a great thing you know what i mean like they thought oh audiences aren't going to understand exactly
1: they're going to get confused yeah and And plus you know reservoir dogs was a lot of you know young people this is the first time they're seeing this
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and it's, it's, you know, and it's, it's being delivered in a movie that's not old, it's in color and it's hip and there's foul language and it's kind of, you know, there's funny talk. And so, you know, he, he delivered it to an audience that wasn't familiar with it and I've, I've, it did it really well. I mean, like yeah. Saw so was saying that scene when Tim Roth is learning the story, telling the story, practicing the story and it keeps intercutting and, you know, he's in different situations and it all comes at the exact moment in the movie when it has the most emotional impact. I mean it's it's yeah. perfect. It's really well done.
3: Yeah, and I I've, I've, I've never gone out of the way to, and I know that those cuts exist where you can watch Reservoir Dogs in chronological Winter. order or or, yeah. or Pulp Fiction and I I I can almost <laughs> expect that they're not going to be as good. What's the point? Like, yeah, I mean there was I remember when Memento
1: came out on dvd like in some kind of limited edition and they had a way you could like if you went through 50 easter eggs clicking on your screen you could watch it you know in order and it was stupid it's like why then it was like any other movie i mean the movie is more this is an argument i have with my other co-host on my other podcast but (laughs) a movie is not just the story it's telling a movie is how it tells that story absolutely you know and that, that that's as important as what happens is how it happens yeah, reservoir dogs in order. I don't I don't want to see that.
4: No, I, it loses the emotional context at that point. Like you he's yeah. supposed to be I mean to me the point of a movie is is to take you on some sort of emotional ride. Like it's supposed to exactly. take you and and make you feel one way then make you feel another way then make you feel and that's what like like I said that scene is so beautifully done and such a brilliant little idea of like because it, it, if you look at sort of the, the emotional arc of that movie or the emotional sort of ups and downs, it's like, okay, here's all these guys. You're really, they're charming and funny and you like them. And then, holy fuck, they just, you know, fucked up and they're dying. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Boom. Kind of, Boom. Yeah. Yeah. You're smacked in the face and this guy's a bloody mess in the back of the car. There's gunfights. All the, and you're like, hold, now your head's spinning, right? Like you're not sure what's going on. Then you start to, find out more about these guys and you start liking them still you know Harvey Keitel's character you you appreciate the fact that he has loyalty that he's an, a stand-up guy uh, Steve Buscemi's character you appreciate that he's a professional and you he's play, funny
1: like he's really
4: funny. you know he's right yeah. and he's smart you know he's he's being smart he's not trying to be an asshole Michael Madsen is is you know he's extremely cool and he's a badass and, he's a, and then all of a sudden it's like okay you got to know all these guys Now I'm going to show you they're not really nice guys. You got to not like them because what I'm going to do to them later, you have to not like them. So now they pull out a cop and they start beating them and torturing them. And you got to really not like Michael Madsen because I'm going to, he's going to be the first to go. So he does what he does. And then you, now you have, but you do have to like one of them. You got to like Tim Roth. He's the good guy. So now I'm going to show you him. I'm going to show you his whole backstory and I'm going to show you it in a way where he's getting over on a bunch of crooks by telling a story that he's getting over on by a bunch a of bunch, yeah.
1: yeah, it's yeah. incredible. It's and you perfect. know, another yeah. thing is, like, you know, you, you have that, the scene, you know, you said you smash cut to Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel and there's blood and everything. And then you go back to like Harvey Keitel meeting with Joe. So you're watching that, but in the back of your head, you're thinking, but how, what, you What's know, but on? this is all going to turn out horribly, yeah. but they don't, you well, know,
4: That's, yeah, yeah, one of the, it's like, you know, the whole time that you're now, as you said before, the, the, the ending, the sort of climax where Keitel is, is defending Roth and we all know. He's fucked. He's wrong. Yeah. He's you. You. And you feel son, so man. bad for him. You're and, like, and oh, it's, this is going to be when, heartbreaking. Yeah. When he lets out that primal scream at the end, when when Roth tells him, "I'm a yeah. cop, Larry. I'm yeah. sorry, Larry. I'm sorry." So-. Uh, he lets out that fucking Ooh, kind of scream that yeah. Harvey Keitel thing. It's like you feel it. You understand what he's feeling completely. It's- He's gonna die, but he's gonna die knowing he was betrayed yeah. and, and he's lost a, everything.
3: A, he's lost a, a, a fucking cop, yeah, by yeah, yeah. by
4: a cop. By a, by but a cop. Not, he didn't care that he was betrayed by a cop, I don't think so much, but he was betrayed by someone that he loved, that he, yeah, that he had that you know, was his brother. That it was, you his do bride.
1: feel that he loved him at the end, yeah. And yeah. You do
4: feel Tim Roth actually kind of loved, yes, him, but he, he was truly sorry, I think. Mm-hmm. He, I think if Roth could have. He, you know, if he could have somehow gotten Keitel out of that situation, he would have.
3: Yeah, I he think so. It,
4: it was the bond that they created.
3: He, of uh, yeah. you know, he knew whatever. he was going to die. He knew he was going to yeah. die, and he knew that Larry wasn't getting out of that warehouse.
4: Yeah, yeah he so knew they, they
3: were was, both they were both done, yeah. and, and so that and was he, his last moment of being real before he died because ain't nobody yeah. getting out of that warehouse.
4: Well, because he had done nothing but lie the entire... Yeah, he
3: had to he tell had the truth. To yeah. he, had to.
4: he had to. He He couldn't hold the burden in any longer. He had been lying to these guys, and he liked them. I think he liked all of them. I think he did, too. You know, yeah, other than maybe yeah. Madsen. I, but he liked the rest of those guys. He he had... Well, formed- his,
1: his partner, doesn't he tell him once? He's like, you can't think about him like that. You gotta, yeah. you know, these are him. criminals. Yeah. You yeah. can't...
3: What, what about the heartbreaking scene where, where Nash, the, the cop, reveals that he knew who Mr. Orange was the whole time? and you're like holy yeah it's me. like you know yeah. nash is
1: kind of a badass actually he didn't you know tell him if he wears ladies underwear harvey could tell was wrong
4: <laughs> how about those fucking uh the, i don't know what it was about the way that he shot oh actually there's two things i want to talk about that moment those moments the 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 scene where Madsen starts the dance, you know, and they're playing stuck in the middle with you, and he's mm-hmm. got the razor out. A uh, little bit of trivia: the reason that Michael Madsen's character is wearing cowboy boots and the razors in his cowboy boot is because the entire cast were wearing their own clothes, and he didn't own any black shoes other than cowboy boots. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's <hilarious>. Yes.
3: <laughs> That's amazing. So,
4: <laughs> yeah, we were all wearing their own clothes. That was all. There was no wardrobe for that. They were all told to come. They get
3: reimbursed for all jeans. the fucking fake blood stains. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> I-
4: Buscemi's. You'll know. You can notice it in some scenes. Busemi's wearing black jeans because he didn't own any black. Jeans.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Which it makes it perfect because these fucking two-bit fucking criminals. Yeah, they're yeah. Really, not big-time criminals. Have, Meanwhile. Yeah. You know, Fort they're not Knox.
1: robbing... You know, I mean, we talk about, like, Ocean's Leaven or this and that or The Killing. They're not robbing Fort Knox. They're robbing a jewelry store. Well, <laughs> yeah.
4: it's a jewelry warehouse.
1: Right. But, you know...
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly, though. It's not like it's, yeah, this gigantic... It's a, it's a regular kind of robbery. It's just, you know, middle of the day. But, yeah, so... uh I kind of lost my... Uh, oh,
1: the, 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 oh, the, the, just my the dance Madsen, and the... Uh,
4: yeah. Oh, so he's... So Madsen's doing the dance and they pan... They cut over to the cop and the cop's sitting in the chair and he's bloody and he's, you know, he's already, he's got the tape on his mouth and it's almost in slow motion. It's not quite slow motion, but it's a little like he just sped the the film up a little bit and you see him just looking and watching Madsen, you know, just Mr. Blonde doing this fucking psychotic dance with a razor in his hand and I don't know what it is about those. They cut to him twice, and it's the same thing. And it's just sort of this slow panning shot of the, of the cop's eyes. And it's like you can feel the fucking terror this guy's yeah. going through. And just the, how, how strange and absurd and, and insane that moment is for that guy. Um, and like
1: all the sane people are gone momentarily
4: yeah he's you know, The alone. professionals
1: are gone they yeah. had you know tim roth may be dead nobody knows and he's alone with madsen
4: stuck alone in the yeah.
1: and stuck. madsen
3: likes it yeah this oh he likes it
4: he tells him i don't you could say whatever you want i don't i don't give a shit what you know what you don't no. know yeah it doesn't matter to me i'm gonna yeah. torture anyway because i like it it's just like oh, geez. it
0: is.
1: It's no wonder oh, Max oh, was like point. antsy about playing that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's great, it's, he's yeah. so good in it.
4: So good. But the other thing I was going to say, I didn't notice this until I watched it this time around. There's this when when Marvin when Roth shoots him, and then Marvin and uh, and and uh, Tim Roth's character are talking. There's a a strange scene where you see the back of Marvin's head, and you see Tim Roth's laying on the ground in the distance and both the back of Marvin's head is in focus and so is Tim Roth but it it looks like it's two separate shots because you have this uh you have the forced perspective on Marvin's head so everything that half of the screen is blurry behind Marvin's head the other half of the screen it's clear and it's because t- you can see Tim Roth in the distance. But you can't see the... Like, it's weird. It looks Good. like they took two shots and and put them together to make it look like you could see both the back of... Because Mar- you can see the detail in Marvin's head. They're both you focused. See, uh-huh. You can't see any detail behind him. So you can't see the wall behind him. But then on the left side of the screen, where the wall is, is Tim Roth, and everything's in focus. That's, that's, so he didn't have the lenses...
3: And that weird. could be like a pan tilt lens. Brian De Palma
1: does a thing like that a lot. It's right. called like he calls it like a split diopter, where you have something tight focus and that's real close, and then but the something in the distance is also in focus. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think Quentin would had the budget to pull that off back then.
4: Well, I no. swear it looks like two separate shots that they somehow put together because there, there's, there's no way it's one shot.
3: Yeah, yeah. it's impossible. Oh. I'll have to look at it. There's a um, uh, there's a photography trick that you can actually detach the lens from the body of a camera and 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 create like a cheap man's pan and tilt lens just by hand Maybe. focusing it up against the body of the camera. That's it's a photography trick. I don't know if it would work. On a- I don't know.
4: It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. Well, when we get Quentin Tarantino on this podcast, because eventually, <laughs> at some point, he will come on our yeah. podcast. Uh, of course, he will. I'll ask these questions.
1: He's not shy about being on podcasts. Yeah. No. Did you ask? I- I-
4: Supposedly, he's uh, going to be doing his own soon.
3: Of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Demand uh, to this because he's a he's a white guy in his fifties, so you have to do that. Um, <laughs> That's me. <laughs> uh, what do you think about Quentin, Quentin Tarantino, the actor in uh, in Reservoir Dogs as Mr. Brown? Well,
1: you know, he wanted to play Mr. Pink, and let's uh, all be glad he did not play Mr. Pink.
4: Absolutely, He told Buscemi. I that's the role I'm going to play. You're going to have to come in and and just kill the audition if you want that role. And thankfully, Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi killed.
1: I mean, yeah. I love Quentin, but as an actor, you know, I think he's yeah. he knows his strengths: writing, directing.
3: We are, we are we are going to do the B side episode of uh, Golden Girls in this, right? Yes,
1: that's his first, I believe, uh, acting uh,
3: on screen credit. <laughs> Is that when he played Elvis, right? Yeah, Elvis impersonator. <laughs> Not Elvis, Elvis impersonator. <laughs> Which is
4: about- well, he did make All a right. movie. He did shoot a movie with uh, his friends from Video Archive. Yeah. The and- Birthday Party or something? Or- yeah, and, but I don't think there's a couple of scenes that exist, but I think he's had everything else destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> or it's in his vault or something. But-
1: destroyed. <laughs> but he has the first lines in Reservoir Dogs, doesn't he? He's the first voice we hear talking. He introduces the Madonna yeah. conversation, I think. Yeah.
3: I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. and what, I and mean, we'll see it, We'll we'll see him again as an actor in what? Dust? Hold on. Well, *Pulp Fiction*. *Pulp Fiction*. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Dust? Hold right. on.
1: A little bit in uh, Django. He does an Australian accent.
4: Yeah.
0: Is he in
1: Foxy Brown*? Jackie I don't Brown? think he Jackie is. Brown?
3: I is he? I don't remember.
1: I don't think he's in *Jackie Brown*.
3: I don't think so.
4: I
1: just maybe he's a voice or something
3: somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see him a couple more times. He's Not a great actor. He's a better better director than actor. I didn't. I didn't dislike him as Mr. Brown. uh, He's fine. He doesn't have a whole lot to do. Luckily, he He and Mr. Blue get killed.
4: It is. It is brilliant that the he had no line for Mr. Blue. Sorry. No, Uh, he has uh, a couple. No, but originally he had to go back and shoot that. And oh, really. Because he realized he had no lines for Mister Blue, so then he he had
3: to go it's back. Same thing where he, yeah, you know the dude the dude that played Mister Blue at uh, one time was the youngest ever inmate in San Quentin. Yeah, he's a real deal. He yeah. wrote yeah. a book,
1: he a couple of books, but I read a, a book of his called Doggy Dog about crime, real crime, and it was good. He's an interesting guy.
4: Yeah. He said that, that reservoir. He's like. The, the, this is so fake. Nobody. Oh, will. of course. He's like, we're not going to go out to breakfast and be seen <laughs> together, and then go pull a heist the same day. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that. What are you crazy? He's like, I'm not doing a job with five strangers that I don't know. They're yeah, no all wearing
1: the way. same outfit, and I yeah. mean, that doesn't. No,
4: but it makes <laughs> but then, a good movie.
1: Yeah, it does. And I mean, and nobody, you know, Reservoir Dogs. I I never cared that it's not believable. They're never, no, no. I never was like, oh, I wouldn't believe that. You know
3: grabs you up yeah you know for for me you know and and we'll we'll cover this you know as we get into the the first thoughts last takes um it it made 70s movies cool for you know for me in the early 90s who you know at that age it's like no you want to get away from from stuff that's old and you know i kind of compare reservoir dogs like guns and roses you know when it was like you know Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and all of this like bubblegum pop. And then oh, Guns 80s and Roses. movies
4: were yeah. very much the same thing. 80s movies didn't have the balls of the 70s no. movies or the 60s. No.
1: I mean, even the good, fun. you know, like the great 80s movies are like, you know, Back to the Future and yeah. Ghostbusters. Right. And they're and great pilot. movies,
3: but they're not but that they kind of have, movie.
4: Yeah. They don't have this kind of punch. Yeah.
3: But they were st- very, very polished. You, mm-hmm. You see it and we'll talk about it in True Romance. True Romance is a Tony Scott 1980s action film. It's play. very slick, and no spoilers, I, but everybody lives yeah, in the I, end. And I,
4: I love True Romance, though. And, it, and it's I, great,
3: but it I is...
4: It, you're we'll see when I rewatch it.
3: It's a Tarantino it. movie that is directed by Tony Scott. Yeah, I haven't seen different. it in a long time. Yeah. A friend
1: of mine back then took his uh, then-girlfriend, and he told her it was like a romantic movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> it is!
2: is but he told
1: her it was like a... Best friend's wedding kind of romance. <laughs> she was not expecting it.
2: Asshole! If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, Christ. Hey, look, you
4: two
3: assholes, calm the fuck down! Hey, come on, back up. what are we on a playground here, huh? So I've got, so I've got kind of a disgusting story about my home life and how much Tarantino is just part of the zeitgeist. So I live in Milwaukee. I, I've got a fenced-in backyard um, with a with a wood bin that's got a big lid on it, mm-hmm. and we have a route problem. And so I set a snap trap in this wood bin. And Marta, my wife, says, Hey, honey, go check the trap. And so I go out in the backyard, I lift up, and it was a particularly large rat that caught this rat trap in a really, really unfortunate way. There was a lot of splatter. And I just kind of yelled, I was like, Jesus Christ, it's a Tarantino movie in there. (laughs) And and, and I lit down. And Marta knew exactly what I meant. (laughs) and i and i look at reservoir dogs and then and the end of that i mean it starts with the first scene in the back of the car but then the end i'm just like there is so much fucking blood in this movie it's it is just drenched in it
4: um
3: there is but i mean
1: i think it's the i mean there is a lot of blood And it's violent, and it's got the ear scene. But I think what really makes it work, and I think what made it stand out, is you have all that. Plus you have the Madonna discussion. Plus you Mm -hmm. have them talking about K-Billy sounds in the 70s. Plus you have them talking about Get Christy Love. You know, it's like these horrible
3: criminals. The black black suits and the skinny ties and the sunglasses, and it's just like this ultimate exuding of cool.
1: Yeah. Right? But they're not – but they're – they're sort of nerds at the same time i mean they're talking about the same dumb pop culture as everybody else
4: and it's you know it, funny will when i'm watching it this time and i'm sitting there watching the opening and you have tarantino playing you know mr whatever the hell he is mr which one mr. is brown mr brown
1: like mr shit as he complains it's, it's and, kind of <laughs> real close to mr shit uh
4: and he's talking about the whole madonna thing and I'm sitting there looking at the rest of the table, and it's, you know, Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi and Michael Madsen and, and Turney and Chris Penn and Harvey Keitel. And I'm sitting there going, what are these guys thinking? Yeah. Watching this guy basically just be himself. And it's like, this is our director? Yeah, this that's what, yeah. The nerd is sitting there talking about Madonna and like a virgin. Like, what the is this guy talking about he,
1: he wrote all their characters to kind of like get involved in them. Yes. Like they, the yes. line that uh, mr blue has isn't it something about like true blue or something like he they all have opinions on this stuff
4: yeah they all yeah they all well even i mean nice guy eddie brings up later he, he tells a whole story but it all started with talking about you know k Billy billy's 70s and you yeah. know yeah oh, they,
3: the, 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 he, i mean Talk.
4: Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was her name?
3: Elois. 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 That's right. Yeah.
4: Elois. Man
3: eater motherfucker. E-Lowis. you ever <laughs> seen her? Had to jerk off. Yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> Great. I tell fucking laughing his ass off the whole time. Yeah. But
1: it's yeah, that stuff mixed with the violence. I really think that that's what made this movie. This is what I remembered most. Like, it was such a roller so, coaster ride
4: in preparation for this podcast, I have been so immersed in everything Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> and old movies and interviews and, just, you know, podcasts that he's been on and everything. And, and so, uh, he just talked about this funny enough. He was on, I think it was on the pure cinema podcast when they were doing, um, last movies. It was there. Right. They, they did a whole thing on the director's last movie. And one of them was the Chevy chase movie, funny farm. And I like I, that movie, by I, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite Chevy it's Chase. It's very underrated. It, and he says the same thing. And Chevy Chase says the same thing. But anyway, he he talks about it in a funny way because he says, well, here, here's the thing. One of the reasons I really love the movie and I feel bad about Chevy Chase's character in the movie is that the idea behind that movie is that they lived in, like, New York. And he was a sports writer in New York. And they decide he quits his job. They decide to move to the country in, like, Connecticut or whatever, and this idyllic town and you know, this beautiful house and all this thing. And it's nothing like that. It's crazy, but he wants to be a novelist. And so he, you know, they moves his family there and they're, they're in this town and he's trying to write this novel. And at one point in the movie, he sits down and he has his wife read the story. And he kind of explains what it was. And he's like, weirdly enough, if you go back and watch it, the story that he explains kind of sounds like Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the problem that his wife has with the book, with the story, is that it's funny. And she doesn't understand it's funny. She's like, isn't it supposed to be a crime story? And he's like, yeah, but it's also funny. And Tarantino's like, yeah, that's what I, you know, I really feel that. Cause it's like, yeah, it's a bloody crime heist movie. And it's also funny. It's all those things, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, He's like, I just feel bad because I kind of like the story that he wrote, and <laughs> <laughs> so. And the thing not... you know, Quinn's got enough skill where the funny parts
1: don't mean that the powerful parts in Reservoir Dogs. You're not laughing during the big emotional no. moments. I mean, he he gives he you everything.
4: Yeah, he balances it so well. The weird, one of the weirdest things I found out about him that he's talked about multiple times is. When people ask him about his influences for his dialogue, because he's obviously so well-known for his dialogue, his dialogue is mm-hmm. kind of unlike anyone else's, really, yeah. other than maybe Patty Chayefsky, thank you, mm-hmm. P- Patty Chayefsky, who he says, oh yeah, it is very similar, He's he actually kind of is surprised how similar it is, but... He, he always lists Richard Pryor as one of his influences for his dialogue. He says oh, he sure just... See that. The, the way that Richard Pryor did his act, the way that he did his comedy... I see him. It was the way he spoke. The the, the the musical, lyrical quality to his, you know, just natural pattern. He took a, a lot from that in his... And that's how he kind of writes some of his dialogue. It's just that ear for that. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. And he loves comedy. I mean, he, he's been... He's been a a you know haunting uh, comedy clubs for years and years and years. Uh, You know he's he's a big comedy nerd as Mm -hmm. well. But uh, oh yeah, I
3: mean you look at the, the the Madonna speech, the 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 Tim Roth scene with the with the cops and the and the dog in the bathroom. I mean that's a stand up routine.
1: Yeah. And I remember it just reminds me when you said about Richard Pryor. I remember this one Richard Pryor line where he said like he was working at some club, I think it was actually in Youngstown, Ohio, that Mafia owned. And he said they would tell him funny stories. He says Anytime the mafia guy tells you a funny story, it ends up with somebody getting killed. <laughs> it's like that's the, the punchline is somebody got killed. <laughs> and you fucking laugh whether it's funny yeah. or not. Oh, and it sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I mean the, yeah. you know, Pulp Fiction, the scene with Marvin, it's it's you I mean, laugh, laugh, but it's like a horrible innocent death.
4: <laughs> Have you ever seen uh jojo dancer the richard Pryor movie that's basically based on his His,
1: life a long time ago but yeah
4: there's there's a whole bit that he does on that and it's you know it's him you know he talks about growing up in peoria and his mom was a prostitute or she was a madam and he grew up in a whorehouse yeah what a life also mobsters there were mobsters that would come in there and and he does a whole bit where he and it's this hilarious thing about him as this little kid working and these mobster guys kind of liked him because they were you know banging all these whores that lived in the house or whatever. <laughs> but, but they would just be like hey come here kid hey, come on and, they, and then he would he kind of learned how to tell jokes and be funny just to sort of off put that you know mm-hmm. that thing but um shitty
3: way to develop that skill huh well,
0: it's, well, it you
4: know, works really well.
1: You, you know, you're not going to be afraid of any other audience
3: if you right. develop that skill with that audience. Ugh. Well, I tell you what, we have a kind of a loose and fast uh, rule here on K Billy Super Sound. You the and the rule, and that is that we are going to try and keep our conversations. No. up about the time of the runtime of the actual movie, uh, which this must be off. his shortest
1: movie, by the way. So it we'll is be expanding shortest. as we. Yeah, are. I can't for wait that. for.
4: Once upon a time in Hollywood's like three and a half hours. Yeah. Long. I get to we'll talk, talk all that. night. <laughs> uh, it,
3: it's it starts next uh, next month with Pulp Fiction, which had a two hour and fifty eight minute runtime. Was oh, so it that long? It, I forgot. Okay, two fifty eight. There's going to be a lot of two and a half hour plus movies here. But Reservoir Dogs had a runtime of an hour and forty minutes. So we're gonna uh, run into the last segment. Wait. You want oh, to hit some trivia? You hit some trivia. Let's do first, some trivia, and then we're going to do uh, first take. What, what are you calling it? First take, last blood. No, first, first blood, last. Or first blood, yeah. last. rites. rights. Okay, so. first blood, last rights. I'm sure okay. you'll have a singer all set up for that soon.
4: <laughs> yeah, I got to get something done for that. All right, just some. Uh, well, you already kind of, we kind of blew one out of the water. I was gonna I was gonna say, uh, the first question I had was what posters hanging on the wall of Mr. Orange's apartment? <gasps> Since you guys are comic book nerds, of course, but I have a follow-up question: Is what inspired what other movie inspired Quentin Tarantino to put that poster on the wall? In Mr. Orange's The
1: American oh. Remake of Breathless.
4: Yes, you are right. That is
3: correct. <laughs> Starring Richard Gere. Yes. Yes. You nerds. Uh. I'm such a nerd. Yes. <laughs> All
4: right. What is the name of the jewelry store that the crew is attempting to run? Uh, I don't know. Uh, no? No one? Chung
3: Yao Fats American Jewelry. <laughs> yeah, City on Fire Jewelry. <laughs> it's named Karina's.
4: Okay. Now, who is it named after? it's mom karina. no no think think well this one's a tough this is a tough one okay but it's it's named karina's uh after uh the danish french actress Anna karina <laughs> oh who was to jean-luc godard
1: french new wave we yes yeah back?
4: <laughs> he named it after after his wife um uh, this one's kind of weird, but it's what, what French film inspired the title Reservoir Dogs?
1: I know this. It's, um, yes. it's, I can never pronounce it. It's, yeah. Revoir.
3: Le Revoir les enfants. Yeah.
4: Someone yeah. mispronounced it in the, in the action
3: video or, uh, video archive. Is there some speculation because apparently Tarantino doesn't like to talk about the, the actual name of the movie, that it's a combination of that and, uh, Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. Where all,
0: that, heaven, all <laughs> Where all dogs go to heaven, perhaps.
3: All dogs go to heaven. What
4: fictional restaurant is heard on the radio ad in the background during the ear cutting scene?
0: The big Kahuna. Big kahuna? No. No.
4: Yeah. Jack Slims. Oh,
3: oh. <laughs> There's an ad for Jack nice. Rabbit. Very. Cool. Um,
4: what does Mister White whisper to Mister Orange?
3: In the last scene, yeah, I don't
4: know. He whispers something into Tim Rossi. That's
3: <laughs> well,
4: there's no definitive answer to what he yeah, said, sure. There's never been a definitive. but in the French release of the film, the t- subtitles say that he says, You don't want a blowjob, by the way.
0: <laughs>
4: in the Italian dub version, <laughs> what? in the Italian dub version, it says. Do you want me to give you a hand job too? <laughs> and in the Spanish dub version he says, "I'll, comb your, I'll comb your hair so you look handsome."
3: <laughs> that prob that last one probably makes the most sense, but otherwise <laughs> I think it's Tarantino fucking with people. Right? Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> completely.
4: How many times is the word fuck said in the film? Oh,
1: I oh, saw God. this once but I can't remember. <laughs> it's probably less than you would think
4: uh it's a lot <laughs> I, think it might
1: have, I can't remember if this beat goodfellas or if goodfellas still held the record back then
4: it's uh well according this is according to tarantino's website it's 272 times
1: i think that might have set the record <laughs> uh
4: and then the last one i have is um which actor from the cast had to be bailed out of jail during shooting to complete his scenes
1: i'm gonna guess lawrence tierney
4: it was Lawrence Tierney. At the end of the first week of shooting, Lawrence Tierney was fired and then quickly rehired. Uh Tierney went drinking after and ended up firing a 357 Magnum into the walls of his Hollywood apartment later that night. He spent the weekend in jail only to be bailed out by his agent Monday morning so he could finish the film.
1: He was a notorious <laughs> handful. He, you know, he's on an episode of Seinfeld where he plays Elaine's dad, and they really? planned to have him on. Playing Elaine's dad, and he was so scary that they just said no. We'll never bring the character back. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's awesome. That's so there's a little bit, of, little, little trivia for Reservoir. Dogs. I tried to
3: find stuff that was a little odd. Uh, you know, that's very good. There's tons I love, of. I love the legend, the legend of Reservoir Dogs. All right, so, well, before we wait, okay, just before we get to the
4: ahead. last thing, I did want to ask your guys' thoughts because there is a theory that. Mr. Pink survives. Mm. What do you guys think? I yeah,
1: I, I read I when good. I watched it. I tried to keep that in mind. I, I don't think he does. It's like in how many gunshots were fired. And I don't know.
4: There's a theory that he survived. And then he's hiding as as uh, Buddy Holly as the waiter.
0: Um, <laughs>
3: no. I, I hate when people do that. <laughs> no, no. They, and for for me, and, and this is um, you know another one of my uh, you know my favorite movies uh, of the uh, Mel Gibson uh, uh, payback part payback. Um, what the last scene in in payback the director's cut where it just kind of you know fades to black and it's like did he live did he die and. And in both of those movies, so, no, everyone died. Everyone, di- it's not a happy ending. All I'm going to say, Chris, is not a happy movie ending. Chris, you need to watch the last episode of Soprano so we can talk about this. Okay, it's the <laughs> it fits in very Sopranos well to what we're
1: talking about.
3: Yeah, it's uh There was so polarizing at the time when it came out. I was just like, I'm not. I'm. I'm hearing too much. I didn't watch the last with, like, season. I got. I got yeah.
4: bored with Sopranos. I. I, oh. I ended up not watching the last season.
3: I rewatched and I I was I loved it so okay Maybe I'll, I'll rewatch that. the, that'll be me and Will's other podcast we'll talk about the last talking to Sabrina. Sabrina. <laughs> uh, but no I, I think I think everyone died in this that every yeah every, I, it works better America. if everyone dies you know yeah
4: I think yeah they're supposed to right they can't yeah he couldn't get what he away do
3: Reservoir Dogs 2? yeah the Adventures of Mister Pink
4: oh you know, I, I was did you guys know that there was a Reservoir Dogs game video game like if no huh? Oh, there, there is amazing. a res- if you go on youtube you mm-hmm. can find all these scenes from it. It, it 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 was a terrible game but it's really yeah. interesting the only character the only actor who actually voiced his own voice in it is michael madsen he actually yeah. has his own voice in the game and it's weird because like it's like chap there's chapters to it as you're <clears> playing <throat> and they show like every chapter they show a sort of a Scene from the movie, but it's remade in the graphics of
3: the game. Oh, really? And it expands the story. You you have to successfully explain why "Like a Virgin" is about a (laughs) horror. I don't know.
4: (laughs) until you've seen a computer-generated Michael Madsen torturing a cop.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) like weird. Yeah,
4: go on YouTube; they're all out there. You can see all this. It's very odd. It's very yeah, awful. I don't think it was a very well received game, but I kind of want to get a copy of it now. Yeah. Oh, it's
1: just, it's like, it does it's sound like yeah, interesting yeah. and how bad. So, it's yeah. like the Atari
3: uh, ET game.
1: Oh, wow. how great would it be if that were the graphics of Rose of the Dogs, like that Atari 8 bit graphics
3: <laughs> <laughs> with the 8 bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, stuck in the middle, playing behind and, you know, like a, a three pixel Switchblade? That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so this, is, this is Sal's segment. He calls it uh, First Blood, Last Rights," which is our, as we would remember it. Sal, explain. This is your... Well, is my your idea version. was, you know, we've all seen these movies at least once, if
4: not multiple mm-hmm. times since, you know, before this, before this podcast, and we're watching it again, obviously. So uh, my thought was just sort of like, do you remember your feelings, your thoughts about the movie when you first saw it, how you felt about it and has anything changed now whatever it is 25 years later watching it again you know for this podcast has anything sort of changed and so I'll, I'll just sort of start with what I feel about it it's like I you know I was sh- sort of amazed sitting down to watch it again I at how not only did I get all the same feelings that I think I got the first time as far as like that slap in the face when it cuts and and you know that scene with Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel in the car is still one of the it, it, i don't want to say it's one of the most bloody or violent cuz i don't even think it's one of the most bloody it's bloody mm-hmm, it's shocking. not the bloody part of it that is that makes that scene so shocking it is the moment that this guy thinks he's dying and his friend is trying to convince him he's going to be okay. That is shocking and heavy, and I just I could feel a weight.
0: Yeah,
4: watching yeah. It, again. I the first time I saw this movie and the the last time I went the same thing. Like the same weight of that scene of that moment. I could feel it, and and I think when I first saw this movie, I loved it. For all the reasons that everybody loves it, you know the dialogue was just so different and unique, and and the combination of humor and crime, the shocking parts of it, Michael Madsen, the ear scene, the ending, all those things I absolutely loved. And for me, at you know being what was it, what was it, when did this movie come out? What we were 192. 192. so I was twenty one years old. I mean, it hit everything for me at that point in my life. Like it was, it was, it was everything. It was everything I wanted out of a movie. You know what I mean? It was all the eighties stuff that I had watched and and all the, you know, the, 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 like we were talking about all those eighties movies, which were fun and entertaining but by that point in my life I was looking for something else. I was looking I was looking for something a little more alternative, a little different than the standard things that you would see over and over and over again in these movies. And this was that. You know, this was so much that and and no surprise it had such a huge effect. So I loved it then. I think watching it again this time I I think I'd love it even more. Mm-hmm. I think now, you know, appreciating the craftsmanship that is in it that Tarantino now seeing having seen his career and what he's done, you can almost sort of like, there's a part of me that, that could, could like go, Oh, well that was his first film. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's cute, but it's not Pulp Fiction or it's not once upon a time in Hollywood or it's not whatever, but watching it again, it's like, man, it's, he's so good. He's so good. He, He already at this point, knew exactly what he was doing he He knew he burst burst onto onto the scene scene. Mm -hmm. he didn't have all the skill that he has now but he had the vision he knew you know what i mean like he knew what he was trying to say he knew what he was trying to do and he knew how to manipulate an audience which i think is really what you know is is the difference between an okay director and a great director is i'm going to I'm going to take you on this journey no matter what I'm going to twist and turn you and and play with your feelings and play with your emotions. And I'm not going to let you know that I did it because that would ruin it. And at the end of it, no matter how you feel, you're going to know you felt something. And, and I think he already, you know, even though I think he gets better as a filmmaker, as his career has gone on, I think he already had that part of him in him where it's just like he knew how to, manipulate an audience with his scenes with his story he knew what he was doing and so if i take anything away my sort of last rights on reservoir dogs is is that i even have more of an appreciation for the film at this point than i did back when i first watched it just just understanding film more understanding story more and seeing being able to watch it and see the kind of craftsmanship that he had already at a very young age. And, and, 20, and it's no surprise. He's, yeah. He's 29 mm-hmm. years old. And, and yeah. So yeah, that's, that's how I would, I would say the difference between then and now for me, what about you guys? I'll,
3: I'll go, I'll next, go next because it will be will much be more, more than I will. Than I will. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I, I think we talked about, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Whenever I saw this, and when I first saw it, obviously I had no idea who Tarantino was. This was a Harvey Keitel and Chris Penn movie. That's <laughs> Those are the people yeah. that mm-hmm. know who Tim Roth... Rock- I mean, it's like legit Harvey. And Harvey Keitel was kind of just at the... I remember, it's like, oh, Harvey Keitel. He's that old guy that was in cool movies back in the 70s. And Chris Penn was kind of the, the younger... The the younger guy, I had no idea what I was coming into, but I do remember at that time, like anything that was 70s was kind of starting to come back in vogue and that like weird pastiche kind of you have, you know, dance clubs were playing delight and which was a 70s pastiche band and you were starting to see homages to the seventies. I was just starting to learn about some of the great like dystopian movies of that time. So I when I remember when I watched it, I felt like I was watching a seventies crime movie without ever having watched a seventies crime movie, you know, (laughs) at, at that point. And so it, it, I remember it encouraged me to go out and find the movies that inspired this. And so it changed the way that I looked at film at, at, at an age when I was wanting to explore that kind of creativity, had no idea what I was coming into. I know it changed the way that I looked at film, which was really cool at the time. And now looking back at it, it's, it is, it's that it's the seed, it's the Genesis that, you know, was the first movie of, of my favorite modern director does it hold up yeah i watched it today it's still a great movie and it 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 grips you it grabs you from that first scene with the the charisma of that group and then the hard slap against the face you know of that of that time cut and it doesn't let go of you all the way to the end and then you question what happens or didn't question it never lets its foot off the gas And so I look at it and it absolutely it it influenced so many movies that came after it. So yeah, that's my my kind of you know last take on it is that it holds up. I see the influence in so many different movies since then. And and that's why it will always have a you know that place on my on my shelf. Even though if you it's not on your shelf, don't don't buy this just for the the extras, because they're not very good. Just, yeah, <laughs> just stream it. Yeah. <laughs> good. All right. So, Will, Mr. Film Critic. Right? See, now you set me up. Yeah. Um, that, right? you know, it's got to be poignant now. That's right. It's going to be heart-touching.
1: I Like I said, I saw this in the theater, and I've kind of, like, looked. I saw it at Piper's Alley in Chicago. I, and, um, mm. you know, I live in Rockford, which is about 75 miles out of Chicago. And I'm trying to think, like, why – I, I went in the city with a buddy specifically to see this movie, and I'm still am not sure why I did, because there was no internet back then. It's not like people were talking about Quentin Tarantino. The only thing I could think of is maybe the magazine film threat maybe like said, hey, here's this cool new movie or something. So I saw it, and I mean I was blown away. I remember sitting there in the theater, and you could feel the whole audience was just like, we don't quite know what we're seeing. And I mean, when I got out, you know, beyond any sort of thought of how well it's done, how, or how how well it's made, written, directed, acted. I mean, all I could think of is this movie, A, is so fucking cool. It's like <laughs> funny and it's hip and it's violent and it's nasty and it just moves. And these guys are wearing, you know, black suits, with thin ties, and sunglasses. I mean, it's like all these elements of cool. And I also felt because of the ear scene and some other stuff and just sort of the general energy that, Tarantino brought to it. It reminded me of um, movies I had seen in college, because which wasn't, it was a few years, you know, not that far in the past back then. Uh, movies like, you know, like Pink Flamingos or Eraserhead or Blue Velvet, but movies that aren't like Reservoir Dogs at all, except for the fact that I would sit there and, and say, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And if people see this movie, it's going to blow their minds because it's so different than everything else. I mean, so I was – when Pulp Fiction came out, I remember being in Milwaukee with some friends just walking along, and we saw – some theater had a poster saying, like, coming in two months, Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, we got to see this. This is the guy that did that Reservoir Dogs movie. We got to see this movie. And um, now, you know, I've I've watched Reservoir Dogs a bunch of times since then and just recently, and it's like – it's like Brian said. It's like it's so – you know, there are so many directors who have a great first movie, and then – eh. They kind of either either that happens. They have a great first movie, but they put everything they had into that movie and they really have no follow up or they're great now. But you go back and watch their first movie and it's like, well, it's so raw. There's a few good ideas, but it's really not worth sitting through. And I'd much rather watch some later stuff that they did. I mean, Quentin, it's a great first movie and he only got better. I mean, although I'm not.
3: We will talk about the the fan reaction to his third movie. In two months.
1: Yeah. Like, and I mean, I'm not saying yeah. I like every other movie is better than this one. But I mean, I think you could argue especially he got sort of richer and more in-depth. And he took more – you know, he took more – his movies, like we said, they got longer. So there's more time for like an emotional impact or just to hang out with these characters and – They got more you ambitious know, too. Right? They got a lot more ambitious. And yeah. But this one, like you said, Sal, it's, it's all – He had it all. He had the dialogue. He and he knew how to put this movie together. I mean, there were a ton of movies that ripped this off, and there were even more movies that ripped off Pulp Fiction, but none of them were quite as good because, you know, Quentin, for whatever his his talent, he he knew what he was doing and he knew the elements that worked and he never you know, Reservoir Dogs is is violent, but it's never too violent. I mean, it's never like so violent, that it feels like, oh, he's just putting that on the screen to get some blood. I mean, he makes it work. You know, the ear scene, we don't see it, but boy, you know, few moves, few scenes have that impact. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he's, he's, it's, it, it holds up beautifully. It really does. And it just makes me sort of appreciate the pure craft that, that went into it. So I was, you know, now I see it as more than just a movie that, like, that's so fucking cool. It's that's just, not, yeah, it's you just a good, well made movie. It really stood the test of time, I think.
2: What the hell for? It'd just be more bullshit. This man set us up. Dad, I'm sorry, but I don't know what the hell's happening. It's all right, Eddie, I do. What the fuck are you talking about? That lump of shit's working with the LAPD. I don't have the slightest fucking idea what you're talking about. Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. I understand. You're hot. You're super fucking pissed. We're all real emotional, but you're barking up the wrong tree. I know this man. He wouldn't do that. You don't know jack shit. I do. The that tipped off the cops, and missed Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue killed. Mr. Blue is dead? The dead as diligent. How do you know all this? It was the only one I wasn't 100% on. I should have my fucking head examined going ahead when I wasn't 100%. That's your proof? You don't need proof when you have instinct. I ignored her before, but no more. You lost your fucking mind. Joe, you're making a terrible mistake I'm not gonna let you make. It.
0: Come on, guys! Nobody wants this!
2: We're
3: supposed to be fucking professionals!
2: I look. Quite a long time, a lot of jobs. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down, and let's settle this with a fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends, and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart you put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad.
4: Can you think of another director that has had more like more moments that have been in like the cultural zeitgeist? Whether it's the ear cutting scene from this or The you know, I I mean, name a dozen. The
3: the, whole whole fiction has got a million. Yeah. The 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 adrenaline plunger. uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean,
4: but you could go through all of his movies, and it's like he's always got something where it's like you're gonna be talking about that tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everybody. You're right.
1: You're right. And and the great thing is, it's like it's like you talk about that, like you talk about the adrenaline plunger scene, but the movie has so much other things, and the reason. The ear scene works and the adrenaline plunger scene works, and the finale of Inglourious Bastards works, or, or the ending of What's Upon Time in Hollywood works. Is you care about these characters. So then when he springs those scenes on you, it really means something. It's not just like a spectacle not and you're like, wow, two. it's not like a Transformers movie. It's like, wow, that building collapsed. And then you're on to the next thing. It's like it means something and it, yeah. it has a real emotional punch to it.
4: Well, that, I, I mean, you know, going back to the ear cutting scene, it's like that wouldn't work the same way if michael madsen wasn't this guy that when you first see him is this sexy cool dude that you want to either be or be around you know hang
3: out and And he's
1: like kind of funny and he's you know he's he's a good friend you know he seems like kind of a yeah
4: it it, it, anybody could put that kind of a scene in a movie but like you said it works because you give a shit about these characters one way or another you like them and then it's like well now you're going to find out what this guy's like you know what i mean and it's like that's why it's like oh it's yeah. gut wrenching
3: just it somebody does, it, it does the same thing with 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 his fake brother uh vincent vega you 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 know when vincent vega dies in pulp fiction spoilers Spoiler? Oh, what? It, um, you know you you hate because you've you've gotten to know him and like him and see you know, a lot of things that it's like, yeah, this is a guy I want to hang out with. Right. He's or in, also a despicable fucking criminal killer. In, you know? in, or in Pulp Fiction, even more,
1: I think, for emotion, it's like when Bruce Willis is in that basement with Marcellus Wallace, and then he gets up, and he could escape, and, and he doesn't. Ready. He yeah. goes, you're like, completely, that's when you really are like, yeah, you know, because you buy it. You're like, he is yeah. this kind of noble guy, and he's been through all this, but he's not He's going to go back into there, and he grabs the samurai sword. I mean, when I saw that, people were going nuts in the theater.
3: Yeah, don't let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, no, no. I know, I know, we, I know. And we are doing the the exactly what I thought we were going to do. We're going to okay. Tarantino this Tarantino. we
4: wormholing within wormholes. Keep... Hey, well, a couple of things though. I do want to mention. I do I do want to tell the audience <laughs> that we do have a Billy Super Sounds uh, letterbox page. So if you go to uh, Letterboxd, it's it's BX. I think there's no B
1: O X D B O X D
4: dot com, and then just search. I guess just search for K Billy. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how else to tell you to find it. Maybe I'll tweet it out. i will put it on Twitter and our Facebook page. But uh, for each episode, there's going to be a list. Um, where we, we're going to put all the movies that we've mentioned. So if you want to watch any of the movies that we've talked about, if you haven't seen the killing or you haven't seen the big combo or Kansas city confidential or Pelham one, two, three, any of the movies that we mentioned in regards to these films that we're watching, I'll make a list for, so you can go and letterboxd is awesome. Cause you click on the movie and it'll tell you, you can add it to your own list, but it'll tell you like where you can watch it. Mm-hmm. Available streaming for free, where it's available, that kind of thing. So it's a really cool site, and uh, yeah. So every episode, I'll I'll have that up there. And um, if if I miss anything, if, if you guys out there know of something that you think was an influence, uh, please let us know. And you can you can email us uh, for that. Um, that and then before we before we finish, I did just want to ask you: again, Have you ever seen? Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but have you heard of the movie? called it's a documentary called the wolf pack
1: yes
3: yes i've seen it
4: yeah have seen it okay i haven't yeah. watched i just found out about it i have not
3: watched it but it's fascinating is that the rogue directors it's the
1: kids whose dad wouldn't let them out of their apartment for years yeah oh. the,
4: the connection here is so it's yeah. a documentary about this father in new york he had a four bedroom apartment in new york and he had seven kids or something i don't know how many kids And for 14 years of their lives, he literally would not let them out of the apartment. They lived, they existed solely in this apartment building. Never went out, did not go to school. And to entertain themselves, they would make, they would watch movies and TV. And then they would make elaborate costumes out of masking tape and and markers. Cardboard,
1: yeah, just real...
4: And one of their favorite movies was Reservoir Dogs. And that, and when they finally do end up going out on the streets of New York and they run into this guy who ended up making this movie about him, Mm -hmm. they're all dressed up like the characters from Reservoir Dogs.
1: The poster there, it's, it looks like the Reservoir Dogs poster yeah. almost. Yeah, they're all wearing black suits and sunglasses, and it's it's an interesting movie. I mean, it's kind of a sad story, but kind of a hopeful story. But but you see clips of them reenacting these movies, and it's nuts because they filmed themselves. They had a video camera, you know. So
4: it's insane. Talk about like influencing. So. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so so for right now, I mean, we may have a different email address in the future, but right now, um, info at aroundcomics.com? dot com. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. It's uh if you don't know us, we do around comics. Chances are if you're watching this, <laughs> you probably, probably know around <laughs> comics. Uh, so we're gonna be back in a month. Like I said, we're gonna do these uh, in order of release, which means that uh stuff like uh uh Dust Hell Dawn and True Romance and uh Nestor Killers, that stuff will be seated in as it was released. But uh next month, this one it's a good one. We like this one. Yeah.
4: Most Pulp famous. Fiction.
3: I'm going to go ahead and set it up here now. There we go. <laughs> On the Chris shelf. This is all hey, radio. Uh, I hate
1: to say this, but <laughs> True Romance has a 93 release date. And Pulp Fiction has a 94 release oh, date. Oh, yeah. True Romance oh. should
4: be not Pulp Fiction.
3: Oh, okay. Well, let me take it down. <laughs> oh, I have to make Chris Range's shelf. Yeah. God damn it. Now <laughs> I got to. I haven't found the vinyl for the True Romance <laughs> Ah. Um, soundtrack. No, which the- I may I may not be buying anyway because I don't think it's as good. Um, yeah, it's not a Quentin approved soundtrack. No. no. Well, shit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that just. Sorry about off. that, Chris. All right. So, True but- Romance is next. Roll and then, take, an, edit. then Natural
4: Born kinner, Killers. So don't. Yeah. Uh, and,
3: that um, has a good soundtrack. That's a Trent Reznor soundtrack. That is a Trent Reznor soundtrack, and there is. I still have that on CD, which is how uh, I think I, do I too. bought it originally. <laughs> so uh, okay, so so it's True Romance, then Natural Born Killers, then Pulp Fiction. I got to wait three months for Pulp Fiction. No, no, no. It's True Romance, then Pulp Pulp Fiction, then Natural, natural, right? right? Natural, and Natural Born Killers.
1: killers. Then
4: four rooms if we're doing that.
1: Yeah. We have to do all four segments. Can we just
3: do Quentin's? (laughs) (laughs) In the Alfred Hitchcock episode, he ripped off to do it. We can, you know, what? yeah. We we'll people. have to, we'll have to see about oh. four rooms. I don't know. It, it's maybe we'll, maybe we'll, um we'll combine four rooms with his Golden Girls oh, episode. Well, that's a good idea.
1: You know, his first screen credit, by the way, is a Dolph Lundgren exercise video.
4: That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. He was like a production assistant or something, but that's his first screen credit. He was a nice.
4: struggling actor wanting yeah. to. Uh, there you go.
3: Take the well, gigs where they come by. Yep, yeah. and he, he did all right. Okay, so True Romance next month. Uh, please uh, give us some feedback. Uh, hit us up in all the regular places that you know us from around comics or out of uh, theaters. And uh, we'd love to uh, get your feedback. Uh, love this first episode, guys. A lot of Damn, fun. Yeah, this is we've been, so much uh, fun. Been looking forward to this for, for months. I know Sal has been probably waking up in the middle of the night. <laughs> thinking about different scenes What you i just
4: to wanted to get the first one done because i'm like okay how much do i have to like prepare for this i don't you know what i mean like i i just feel like okay now i i'm kind of now i got a feel for how this is gonna go i don't need to necessarily I yeah. <laughs> do as much preparation as i possibly did for this one i have like three more reams of notes i could- <laughs>
3: You know, really so want to, so for our Patreon members at uh, patreon.com slash Comics, you nope. can get a scan of Sal's 18 pages of notes on present dogs. Numbers. I have saved
4: <laughs> uh, uh, under the just I have folders for every movie mm-hmm. with bookmarks.
3: One yeah. of these days I'll auction off uh, a Google Drive password so you can see the depths of, of how much research gets done. <laughs>
4: Yeah, well, you know, what do you mean? <laughs>
3: that's, that's why I love you. All right, so uh, uh, I think that's it. Uh, K. Billy Super Sounds, Episode 1, Reservoir Dogs from 1992. I think uh, we won't say if we liked it or hated it, because uh, you yeah, pretty going to like all these, all these movies pretty much. So, yeah, it's uh, so it begins, I would say. <laughs> Let's, get right. Let's get to work. Let's get to so, work. Let's get a taco. <laughs> there you go. Let's get a taco. I think that should be our sign-off. Every episode, yeah, I'm hungry. Let's
1: Taco. That was the Partridge Family's "Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted," followed by Edison Lighthouses' "Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes," as K. Billy's Super Sounds of the '70s weekend just keeps on trucking.